0: Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Stephen King's It.
1: Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? <clears throat>
0: Supposed
1: to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. (laughs) Direct. I guess
0: so. I gotta
2: go. Go
1: without this.
2: My coat. Eggs.
1: Exactly. Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh. You want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, Of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And blue, too. All
0: colors. Do they float?
1: Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. Dave. when you're down here with me, you float down.
0: In a small but successful town of Derry in Maine, something dark is stirring under the Earth. There are strange occurrences every 27 years, and dating back centuries, maybe longer, each time they happen, children disappear, snatched away, murdered, eaten. Now it falls to seven brave young people to root out this hidden presence and attempt to defeat it. This is a commission show courtesy of Nick, aka N Scott G on Twitter. He asked us to cover the nineteen ninety TV miniseries of this voluminous nineteen eighty six Stephen King novel, and for a couple of reasons we pulled out all the stops to cover the book as well. One reason being that Sharon has loved this book more than two-thirds of her life and having never read it but heard her go on about its shadowy depths, I wanted to get involved at long last and know her a little better, something I think I've achieved in doing so. Uh, Two is that Nick has been very generous with us and commissioned several shows altogether, a lot of them on relatively new stories to us that we came to as outsiders, so we wanted to give something special this time around as insiders. With us is Alan Wilkinson, a new voice on the show and the only fellow brave enough to venture with us down into the sewers to tackle this beast. Hello, Alan.
1: Hello, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. This
0: also serves as some good preparation for the upcoming movie duology beginning in 2017. So this will be two movies, apparently. The first covering The Kids' Adventure, which has been time-displaced from 1958 to 1989. And the second will cover The Adults' Returning to Derry in 2016, formerly 1985 in the book, to deal with the 27-year re-emergence of It. Now, that's a pretty smoothly focused pairing unlike the miniseries in the book which intersect the two time frames and jump backwards and forwards so to help us along i'm going to suggest we do the same for this show start with the kids in 59 and then go for the second part and cover the 80 1986 period when they return that way we'll have set up who they were back then which informs heavily on who they are now Needless to say, there are some gruesome things discussed in this episode, including violence visited upon adults and children, and rather more sex than people would expect. Now, tackling the book was a huge deal for me. I don't have the time in my working hours to read through its 1,000 plus pages, but I was able to get the audiobook onto my iPod, playing whenever I wasn't audio editing or trying to sleep. It's 41 hours long. And that's a lot of hours. Normally I would never do that for a regular commission show. If you were going to ask me to, to watch 41 hours of anime, for example, I would throw a sum at you of dollars that most, unless you're an eccentric millionaire, you can't afford that. But this really is something I've been meaning to do for years and I just needed a serious push. Uh, it's pretty hard going. This book in 2016, especially for someone who spends most of their time editing, it's dense and super detailed to the point of going off on very long tangents, following incidental characters into avenues that aren't actually all that relevant. What it does, however, achieve through all of that is making the town of Derry a lot more of a real place in the head of the reader. The miniseries, which I've seen a couple of times since I first caught it in an all-night video party in 1992 along with Alien 3, Universal Soldier and Toy Soldiers, is more of a fast run through all of the important bits with a lot of what makes them significant removed. And with the tone very much aimed at young, impressionable kids with far more creeping goings-on than actual violence. It's It seems weird to say this is aimed at kids, but it sure as hell is not aimed at discerning adults who can take horror it's got plenty of blood but it seems to be going out of its way to not cause anybody offense as such i'm not going to try to be one of those tedious the book was better arguers it's not always the case plenty of adaptations like lord of the rings were unarguably better for a cinema audience and in the case of the iron giant casino royale and stardust they just are straight up better in general however the book of it in this case is rich and challenging, deeply upsetting, often dated and clumsy, whereas the miniseries is just dated and clumsy, with none of those depths or a true sense of the magnitude of what the kids are facing. It's not all bad by any means. There's some really good bits in it. And of course, there's Tim Curry, as everyone seems to mention, who I think kind of became indelible in terms of like when you think of evil clowns. But uh, it will go into its ups and downs along the way. And tonight we're going to flesh this whole story out for you guys. If this makes you want to read or listen to the book, then great. If you can hold on until the 2017 movie, we will definitely have something to say about that too. And you'll be going in forearmed with perspective on the source material, which was the best-selling book, by the way, of 1986, and, of course, the first attempt at adapting it in 1990. Sharon, hello hello can you give us like i'm going to ask you this as well alan like i've only just read this book but i'm i'm guessing you both well i know sharon read this when she was much much younger um and uh and alan as well so sharon if you want to just tell us your history with it
2: um okay i read the book when i was about 13 or 14 i don't know if i could put a pinpoint on exactly when um It was, I'm just trying to think, it was probably the second Stephen King book that I read. And, in fact, no, it would have been the third. Carrie, Pet Cemetery, and then It. And then I went back to Others. I was... For anybody who is not that familiar with the story, it basically focuses on a group of seven children who refer to themselves as the Losers Club. And they are not exactly outcasts in their own school, certainly not all of them, um, but they are, for various reasons, subjected to difficult home lives, bullying in school, and various other things that basically mean that the bond between the seven of them pretty quickly becomes the most important thing in their
0: lives. They are the most alienated from Derry.
2: Yes. Um, Now, I, at that age, was struggling with social connection, to say the least. Um, I'd gone over the space of about three or four years from being um, quite an outgoing um loud, opinionated, gregarious child, um, who never had any particular problems making friends, um, to somebody who struggled.
0: This is gonna to happen to Lyra, isn't it? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know.
2: Um and basically there were so many individual elements of the characters that I identified with hard. Um, Little things, well, big things to them and big things to me, but um, Ben hiding in the library uh, to keep out of the way of the bullies Um, and connecting more with teachers and um, adults than he did with other children. Um, That was something I identified with very heavily. Um, Bev finding it extremely difficult to get on with girls her own age um, and finding that when she did make friends, it had a tendency to be um, more the the boys around her that she connected with. I identified with that to a degree as well. Um, it, Richie getting picked on because of his glasses. That was something that I felt... Um, quite connected with too, and uh, and on and on. I could I could, you know, go on, but I won't because we'd be here all night. Um, but basically, um, all of those things meant that this rapidly became
0: saying um is kind of your stammer as well. It is a
2: bit yes. This he became. He thrust his fists against the post. <laughs> <laughs> the i don't even know if i can really say it was it's my fav it was my favorite book as a teenager it was the most important book to me at that age and for a very very long time and i saw the tv series with the same small group of friends in inverted commas that introduced me to the book weirdly enough
0: Interesting, you'd think they'd have more respect for it.
2: You would. Um, But one of them in particular, two of them were were pretty bad, but one of them in particular uh, bullied the shit out of me. And despite the fact that these were the closest I got to having a a solid group of friends at that age, hanging out with them was nightmarish. Uh. So... it was a very weird period of time because the most awful things were happening and the thing that was giving me the strength to get through it was happening as well. Um, So yeah, it's, I've never really properly gone back to it. I've, I've dipped in and out over the years um, I was actually quite scared at the prospect of reading it again because I thought if I read it and it doesn't mean the same thing anymore, that's going to be quite a bother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mistress of understatement, I am. So yeah, that's my history with the book It
0: there's an odd parallel with revisiting it after 20 yes. something years going
2: back to it over, after all this time as an yeah adult. and there's there's one other thing as well which is is small but significant i when i read this the age that they all are when they come back they're kind of 37 38 mm-hmm. for some reason uh, intimately connected with how strongly i bonded with this book my brain decided that that was the age that you become a grown up
0: your heart dies. Uh,
2: not necessarily. <laughs> I think some elements of it were I considered to be in a good way. Um, but the, basically, as soon as I hit 37, 38, I was not going to be able to kid myself that I was a young person anymore. I turned 37 last November, and I turned 38 in about a month. So the timing on this is is quite impressive. <laughs>
0: Alan, uh, what was your experience with this?
1: Well, when Sharon started speaking there, I was think that's exactly my experience. I read this when I was a teenager. I was I was going through a phase of reading a lot of horror books. Um, I think, like a lot of probably particularly boys, I would say my age, got out of kids' books and then what do you read next? It's Dean Koontz, Stephen King, James Mm -hmm. Herbert.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm nodding here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, and even the really schlocky stuff like Sean Hudson, which is really, I'm not sure I could go back to these days. Um, But um, I think I'd read a few Stephen King, I couldn't tell you what order I read Stephen King's books in. I read straight into the library, getting all the books I could find out. It was probably the book that made me a Stephen King fan. Um, Like Sharon, I very much identified with the kids. I've never, I would never say I was an outcast. I, probably what stopped me feeling that way more than anything else is I had a brother who was a year older than me. So whatever happened, even if I struggled to make friends at school, I always could come home and I've got a brother there who I could talk to. I could chat about things to play games with. So I never would have felt that way, even if I had no other friends. But, I identified I was always a bookish, introverted kid. I would read a lot. I wasn't I would play football with kids but I wasn't really the type to go out mount going out on bike rides and anything like that. So particularly Ben I would think is the one character I would say was closest to what I identified with and he was the character I always thought that is like me. Um so it really sort of it was one of those books that I read and it was like I wanted to be in the book. As strange as that sounds, when the, how horrible it is for these kids. I wanted to be with those. I want, the friendships just rang true. Um, so There's so many books where you read about kids' friendships and it's just embarrassing. But this really rang true. And Again, I didn't read the book again. I never went back to it. Um, I never read, watched the miniseries. Um, I didn't, never really wanted to watch it because... I didn't want to sully my memories of the book. Um, so I'm 35 now. So, again, similar to Sharon, it's about the age of the the adults in the book. So it, um, when Alex was doing the show, I went back, read the book, blitzed my way straight through it, and watched the miniseries, and now here I am.
0: Well, this feels oddly predestined.
1: Yes, <laughs> it <certainly> <laughs> does. <laughs>
0: So let's take a look at each character in turn, what's their background, what motivates them, and along the way we can point out the differences between the book and the 1990 miniseries, which is about three hours long and available on DVD everywhere. Right, so uh, Bill Denborough is the... Uh, if there's a lead of these uh, seven, it's probably Bill. Like that, uh, like he's the, He ends up being the de facto leader. Uh, this kid is... Um, uh, his quirk, they all have like one major quirk each. Uh, Bill has a stutter and uh, he uh, he is personally involved in all this because his brother Georgie is killed horribly by it as the first thing that happens. Um, and we can talk about the actual deaths in a bit, but just focusing on Bill briefly, I think we're going to just like hop, skip, and jump through the characters. I had difficulty differentiating him from Ben going through this uh, because... Having not seen the miniseries for many years and not being massively familiar with it um, even back then, I had difficulty differentiating between the various white boys. Uh, You know, I ended up kind of like relegating it to quirks. So, you know, stutter, funny, fat, asthmatic, black, scout and girl. These are not actual deficiencies in and of themselves, but they were the things that they were stigmatised by the bullies in the book Mm -hmm. for.
1: Well, in the books, it's more with Stan. It's more Jew than Scout. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, I I just, I I kept
0: thinking of Stan as like the the boy Scout who. He's actually also a germaphobe. He doesn't like uh, being filthy. In fact, one of the, uh, the, it appears to be the contributing factors to his ultimate decision is not that he's scared of going back, just that he's scared of being in a sewer again. Bill Bill, Bill has a stammer and is played by Jonathan Brandis in the. the miniseries who went on to be in Sequest DSV.
2: He did. Yes. He played, um, Lucas Wallencheck, hmm. the young kid who found himself on board the Sequest looking after a dolphin that could talk.
0: Hmm. And ultimately a few years after that, um, took his own life, which is dreadfully sad, especially when you consider that his is probably the best performance in this whole miniseries. He By has a mile. I thought, oh, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he outstanding. has, one or two moments where he's um, just trying to come to terms with the magnitude of what they've got ahead of them, and trying to get them to um to to well the the bit where he just says "help me" is 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 so excellently powerfully performed. But since I'm very visual, I would never have forgotten who Bill was had I but gone in straight away with with this as a film or as as a mini series. But listening to the book, it was having to like. Keep focusing on who Bill was for me. Mm. What did you guys think of Bill throughout uh, as a child?
2: I think for me, one of the most striking things um, about Bill is because one of one of the elements that I find so appealing about this book is the way the perspective jumps around. Um, it's something that uh, George R. R. Martin uses to great effect in the Game of Thrones series. Sorry, the Song of Ice and Fire series. And having the chapters go from perspective to perspective, there's very little sort of God third person going mm, on mm. that's not attached to any particular individual.
0: Mm. I did the same it, in New Century.
2: Yeah, it does happen occasionally. But generally speaking, when that's going on, and there does need to be a slightly more detached perspective...
0: Isn't uh, that just Mike doing the... There's a, a, that occasionally it changes tense, doesn't it? When it
2: does. Mike? The The observations in between the segments where Mike's giving information about the history of the town, again, that's in part from Mike's perspective, but he does tend to be more factual about it and there's a lot less emotional connotation going on. But when a more detached, detached perspective is required... King kind of slips into what he used with Carrie, which was a lot of newspaper reports mm. and uh, police reports and that kind of thing. So there's there's not that personal involvement.
0: So, again, he and I were both inspired by Dracula in terms of... Yeah, yeah sort of, you know, absolutely. Are the, uh, which I, I was a
2: massive time. fan of, of Dracula as well as a, a younger person. Mm. So that, that may possibly have influenced why I liked this and why I liked Carrie so much as well but the the reason that i think that becomes significant is that when you get a character who is described in very positive terms by other people it's then really interesting to get a chapter from their own perspective and they don't think of themselves that way. They think of, you know, there's there's other things that preoccupy them. Bill is generally looked at by the others as the charismatic one. He's, as you say, he becomes the de facto leader. Big Bill. Big Bill. And I think the the main reason for that is because ultimately he's a big brother.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: He is, the, the first time you meet him, he is, although he's not well, he's still being very brotherly towards Georgie as Georgie goes off into the the flood to play and he carries off you that- go
0: Georgie into the flood to play now oh, yeah the, good idea there's a parents. lot of that
2: actually when you're reading the 1950s stuff and you're like my god kids were allowed to go out and do this sort of thing no wonder half of them ended up dead
0: I got you some new candies they made of lead
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it, it did occur to me that the, obviously the new new film is coming out yeah that is probably the 80s is the last decade you could set it in because you could not set it any later than that now could you because because it would literally be impossible to do it
2: absolutely because there would be so much more awareness of the the dangers that kids can get themselves into when they're out and about on their own Mm -hmm. um but yeah so so bill is this kind of charismatic guy who who tries to look after everybody and gives them all a lot of reassurance and all of them seem in some way to feel better when they're with Bill then you get a chapter from Bill's perspective and you realize how crushed he's been by the death of his little brother and how hard he finds it to manage his home life now with parents that sometimes don't see him or acknowledge him in any way and I was kind of trying to look at it now from the perspective of what is what is significant in their lives that's that's wrong, that they take with them as they grow up and then therefore have to bring back with them to mm. resolve when they return to Derry and in Bill's case it's the unresolved grief over Georgie mm. and his parents' unresolved and guilt. grief and guilt because Georgie died and he didn't mm. so that survivor guilt element of also
0: it. that he gave Georgie the bolt which was the impetus for Georgie to go outside in the first yes, place yes,
2: yeah, that too
0: he made it for him
2: but that that fact that his parents are never able to resolve their own grief and so they're never able to help him with his. And there's one particular line where he's talking or he's thinking about, rather, the fact that his parents don't connect with each other hmm. anymore and it's why are they crying so far apart hmm. when his father's in tears in Georgie's room and his mother's downstairs crying in the kitchen. And he can't connect them anymore. And I got to that bit and I thought, yeah, this is just as powerful it was as it was when I was a kid. There's still There are some elements to it that are really difficult to go back to. We will discuss those later. But in terms of the characterization, in terms of how everything came to life for me, that hasn't changed.
0: Richie Tozier is the funny guy, and he's uh, played by Seth Green in the uh, miniseries, which is appropriate because Seth Green obviously went on to be a world-class comedian uh, in his shows, Uh, in a way that the adult Richie does not come off as a world-class comedian. (laughs) He was one of the most likable of uh, characters uh, for me, Um, and at the same time one of the most annoying. He's supposed to be annoying, um, but uh, he's constantly deflecting everything emotional with humour, much like Chandler and Friends. Um, But... The way King has him do it in the book is to constantly put on voices, racist voices. Uh, in particular, his King's words, not mine. Pickin' an any voice where he's like, "Oh no, massa, don't beat me," and it's like they have a thing that they do where they're like, "Beat, beat, witchy," meaning you've gone too far. Stop being, stop trying to be funny right now. Just calm it down a bit, which is great. And they do employ it, especially when he uses his pickin' an any voice. But he never gets told. Just stop doing it. It's not funny. And his Mexican voice and just like Yeah, at the same time, it's almost like if they got him to stop doing that, he'd have ended up lost and trying to find new ways to be funny at a crucial time when they needed to laugh. So it's almost like they at the at the end of the children's adventure in the late fifties, they should have then sort of turned to Richie and said, you gotta get some new voices, though. There's other ways of being funny, and that that like, there's no way they're doing that in the '80s in the uh, the new film. Mm.
2: Although he does seem to have at least a mild case of ADHD. Oh, yeah. So if he's, I I wouldn't be surprised if he's medicated in the '80s. Yeah.
1: No, he, well, I think it's made. I think pretty clear that he's suffering from ADHD in the books. I think it's made almost plain as day that that's pretty much what he's suffering from. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mind. I think it's of its time. I think in the late fifties, I think it would be unrealistic. I think racism at that time in America was so normalized. Mm-hmm. I think I can I can forgive it. I, it's one of those things. That, and it's probably not fair, but because I know Stephen King as an author is not a racist man, mm. I know he's a fairly decent man, I, can, I know where he's coming from, it's probably not right to forgive that sort of thing, but I have to say it didn't bother me massively.
0: Mm. But, I mean, it, may, uh, it probably wouldn't have affected me quite so much if I wasn't listening to the audio book and it wasn't uh, in, like, 12 bits. Uh, you know, yes, one or two, I'd be like, yeah, he's doing that thing, but then just hearing the guy sort of launch into it, and like, oh... And when
2: you're reading it, you can kind of skip over it and go, yeah, yeah, let's move on. But yeah, yeah, it's harder to do that when somebody's saying it yeah. right. It's
0: basically at that, at that point, I'm sitting in a room while a guy's just going on and on and on. And I'm just like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> that's just, that's more of a kind of a warning to folks who are going to read the book. This happens, just be ready for it. Yeah. He doesn't mean any harm by it. He's just being an idiot. Mm.
2: I think um, what bothered me much more going back to it was the uh the homophobia there
0: is oh uh, the bit with it at the beginning and the well, this isn't in the mini series at all but no, the the no, cops at the beginning uh, rather than a child being killed uh, in a, you know amongst uh, the new the laundry uh, which is a kind of a, a a spin on the child being killed in the toilet while his mother's hanging laundry in the book a gay couple are murdered by cops and dragged into the Kandusky by... Nope.
2: Nope. Um, Thrown
0: over the uh, bridge by cops.
2: It's, no, no, no. It's, the, it's not the police that are, that attack them. No? It's just three local... Guys. Kids.
0: There is a racist policeman, though. There is. There is that a- was so difficult for me to listen to, folks, this section. I was kind of trying to chew my brain out. I was just like, this... Is uncomfortable. The
2: intro sequence is the cops who are investigating this particular that's it. murder. At
0: least one of them is terrified of gay people.
2: Yeah, the, and, and that. There's...
0: Oh, uh, side note by the way, uh, in the '80s version, the new film, that is Henry Bauer's father.
2: Mm, yeah,
0: they've changed the rate the uh, the homophobic cop to Henry Bauer's father.
2: In the oh right, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the the. Murderers, in the book, is the son of one of the kids that hang, hung around with Henry Bowers.
0: Okay. Um, but what, Victor?
2: Moose, something. Oh, there was a moose as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of relatively casual gay bashing mm. that turns up from time to time. And I think a, a, a sizable portion of it is, it's more like a thread
0: of social commentary than anything else. Yeah, it seems like King saying, look, this is horrible. Yeah, people just allow this to happen. It's in such
2: a way as to say that yeah. this is okay by any stretch of the imagination. But, I mean, there that is was, no doubt where your sympathies that, are supposed to lie.
0: This is the bit that's set in the 80s, and, and being terrified of gay people was definitely a thing in yeah, the 80s.
2: absolutely. Um, but, but that was the thing that made me, uh, that, that kind of alerted me to the fact that I was reading something that was written a long time ago. Yeah.
0: It comes off as a period piece, definitely.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, they could definitely handle that in a way, in, in a way that makes your flesh crawl in the uh, new film. Yeah. Just a, it's a good way of outlining outlining that Derry itself is this kind of it's it's got it's this thread of nastiness and going horrible. through it and it's yeah. got this these this bad way of thinking mm. which is oh there's brilliant use of english alex well done your english you should be proud <laughs> bad way of thinking it's got this backward ass trumpish way of thinking mm.
2: it does almost <laughs> seem actually to be a metaphor for mm. the underlying the rot. awfulness that that yeah. lies under a lot of america and yeah. i think that's the point i think that's
0: which they really don't handle in the miniseries. No, I was they just make say, the one little reference to it. it Beverly says, Oh, there was this one old guy, and he saw me getting bullied and, like, pretty much, like, raped in the street by Henry Bowers as a child. And he just sort of looked at me and went, Nah. And she inferred from that, all of Derry's in on this. We'll talk about the complicity of uh, Derry, the unconscious complicity of Derry in, in what it's doing uh, later. But, uh, but that. Really needs to come across, and that's far more scary uh, and insidious a notion almost than it itself. Mm. Yeah, Ben Hanscom is uh, in the in, in the miniseries. He's teased for being <sighs> fat. That's just a stocky kid. He's yeah. you know he's well built and, and chunky, but he's not fat. um and, and even if he was, that's just fucking inexcusable by today's standards. And, uh, you know, needs to be outlined as, uh, you know, this is not just what happens. It, it's more indicative of the rot. But uh, Ben is to tease for being fat and he is quite a, a sensitive, passionate little boy. He uh, he writes poetry for Bev. Is that mm-hmm. all right? Yeah. And um, he th- there's a love triangle that uh, exists between uh, Ben and Bill and the girl Beverly, uh, which sort of plays out throughout the book and uh, gets resolved at the end it's done more sensitively than I would have expected
2: in the miniseries or the book or both
0: oh the book the miniseries <laughs> is crass as hell
2: <laughs> I was going to say oh. there's there's one line actually in the TV series that really made me cringe when it's not
0: really a TV series it's a TV movie in two parts yeah
2: no that's true Um, And I mean, it's what is it? Four hours, which a a movie these days can easily get away with being
0: hour and a half each night. So
2: Yeah, absolutely. But um, but yeah, when they all meet back up again, years later, the first thing that Beverly says to Ben is, I'm so proud of you. And that is entirely based on the fact that over the 30 years since she last saw him, he's managed to lose some
0: weight. Well done, look at you.
2: What a (laughs) patronising thing to
1: say. (laughs) He's also grown a great 80s beard as well. He is,
2: yes. Incredible 80s beard. Maybe it was the beard that she was impressed with.
0: Ben's played by um, John Ritter of, uh, was he Three's Company? John Ritter. Not the first time we mentioned him on this show. He was in Flight of Dragons.
2: Mm. Oh, you were right about Three's Company.
0: (sighs) Completely Uh, pointless (laughs) diversion. It was Three's Company.
1: It's one of those names I've heard of. So much, but again, I couldn't name anything he was in. He's just uh, mm. its one of those, I think, names that you hear a lot without
0: necessarily knowing who he is. And very sadly, John Ritter died in, I think it was 2002, so... Three. 2003, so uh, uh, 13 years after this. And, not and I, th-
1: long- I thought I looked at the young Ben Hanscom. I don't think he's been in anything else, and I'm not surprised.
0: He's not the best actor, but then no one is the best actor. Um, yeah, there's... <laughs> Ben's got quite a lot to deal with because his his father's died and they his mother has moved in with her sister and it's it's an uncomfortable home life. Richie of the of the group probably has the the easiest time of it at home. Though obviously he's covering everything with humor. But uh yeah, Ben is unsettled and he's the new kid in town and uh he he just generally is ill at ease with himself and he's the one who's wandering around alone. First, who then finds a couple of the others and they like, they start to come together as the seven Mm. after, after he meets them and are made seven fully when uh, Mike turns up. Uh, Beverly Marsh. Okay. um, As I was listening to this for 40 goddamn hours, it became abundantly clear to me how incredibly important Beverly was uh, to Sharon. Uh, I'm going to let her talk about Bev rather than just me assuming anything beyond that but it feels like Beverly was a major conduit to you for this book
2: definitely and I think it's again this is one of the things that it's difficult looking back on because the role that Bev plays in this story basically she's the emotional linchpin she's the uh, the kind of emotional core that holds everybody together and that is an extremely ...stereotypical role for the girl in a group of boys to play.
0: I think it's the the trope of she's playing mommy. Yeah, exactly. She's the shitaro of the group.
2: Yeah. Um, And it's it's tricky to separate that trope... ...from how much of an impact on me that had as a teenager. Mm -hmm. She's a poor kid... She lives with both her parents, but her mother is very distant and her father is extremely abusive. Um, He beats her quite regularly. And that relationship is described in uncomfortable detail. Hmm. His intentions
0: towards her become more unsavoury as time goes by.
2: Absolutely. Um, And as an adult, it's... uh, Even more difficult to read because she ends up marrying somebody who is very similar to her father. Um, She is regularly beaten and abused in various ways by him. All of that and the fact that despite all of that she still comes across to me at least as a very independent and self-aware person. that carried a lot of weight with me and i wouldn't necessarily say that i'd that i'd gone out of my way to emulate her or anything like that but i think the way that she handles people the way that she talks to people um and the way that she reacts in certain situations
0: and nurturing
2: yeah her nurturing, even when she is in pain, is something that really, really stuck with me. And it it's not a case of, I read that and I thought, oh, that's how all girls have to be, so I have to copy that. It just, it felt very natural to me that that was... Um, it was it was more that I connected what was already there connected with her rather than reading it and thinking, "I want to be like that," and then pretending to be like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I found the scenes where she uh, deals with her alcoholic abusive husband quite cathartic. Yes, hmm. And going back to them later in life quite cathartic as well even though they are horrible and there are there's several things in this book that have that have an impact on me in terms of like little things that still make me react so there's a there's a moment in that scene where she rips two of her fingernails off and i think that's partly why i have the fingernail thing Mm -hmm. that we were talking about the other day um and uh, there's a there's a few other things as well that um that just they they you know the things that put your teeth on edge for me this book is where a lot of them, a lot of mine come from
0: you, the your spit phobia as well you mentioned that yes that's in there too
2: mm-hmm.
0: won't talk about that
2: let's not don't want to turn your
0: stomach <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't want me to throw up on the microphone mm.
1: for me the scariest the most arguably the scariest is seeing the whole book is the scene at the start with her and her husband i yeah. just think i, I, I That was probably the most difficult thing to read out of the whole book. There's some horrific imagery in there, but for me that was just... It is really difficult to get through that bit because it it feels real and it feels genuinely scary. Mm.
2: It does. It feels incredibly real.
0: One of the things Stephen King seems to um, be pushing in all of the books that I've read of his is fight. Don't curl up like a, a hedgehog and allow... Whatever sociopath is in front of you to uh, control you and hurt you and kill you, um, which is why I always find The Shining so baffling. The the the, the wife in The Shining running around going ah the whole time. It's supposed to be about you know Danny's resourcefulness mm. and the f- the focus in both the miniseries and the uh, in the Kubrick film on Shelley Duvall screaming. And just cowering and making poor decision after poor decision is—I
2: don't massively rate those adaptations. Mm.
0: Even the one that was basically rewritten and adapted by Stephen King himself. Mm. But you like the book,
2: I, Rebecca De Mornay's better mm. than Shelley Duvall. Um, in terms of portraying Wendy but i think you're right about the whole you know
0: he it, wants not, you to he wants you to basically sort of store this stuff away and then if you're ever being abused to fight back
2: it's i don't think it's so much he wants i don't think it's so much that he's instructing people not to because ultimately when that instinct kicks in or that lack of instinct specifically because that that reaction to shut down and freeze is a very natural thing it's, it's something that's chemical and it's really hard to overcome. Um, I think what he's doing when he he describes scenes like that, and it's not just with his female characters either. There's a moment when um, Ben... Yeah,
0: when Ben's going to have his attacked. stomach carved up by Henry yeah, Bowers. that
2: he has basically all of his fear drops away and he has a moment of clarity that allows him to regain control of the situation and get out of it. I think what Stephen King is doing more than instructing is modeling is basically saying this can happen try and have you know that you could, if you have something that you can hold on to in the core of that fear that will bring you out of it then it will protect you.
0: Hm.
1: Yeah, no that's what that's what I meant. Mm. Yeah. I think well I think that's the strength of Bev as a character is that she's abused by both her father and her husband but she's not defined by that abuse. Mm. So she, there's a lot more going on that she's not just the abused woman. Yeah. I think that's really where the strength lies that she she's managed to find something that's more important than the abuse and that's what really gets her to leave her husband in the at the start of the book is that something more important Mm. this is what i am this is what i'm going to do
2: absolutely it shapes her circumstances but it doesn't shape her
1: Mm. exactly in the miniseries, however, she's a
0: lot more weepy and uh, there's there's a point where I think they made this scene up where uh, uh, Ben says, how could you possibly marry that guy? He's basically just the worst parts of your father. No, no,
2: no. She says it. If oh, he'd she said says. it, that would have been, <laughs> that would have been caused a, right, okay, back off.
0: <laughs> no, no. But he says, but you were, were blind and now you can see. No, no, no. She
2: says that she was blind and he yeah. says, but you're not blind now. And that's mm-hmm. that's something to be proud of.
0: Okay. Either way, the point. It's you, a naff
2: scene. I hate it. The
0: point you made at that time <laughs> when we were watching it was that you know he not only is he the worst of her father, he's also the best of her father. Mm. The stuff that she still loved him despite him being monstrous. Yeah, which is very very difficult to separate. Mm.
2: And I think that scene actually is a really good um, example of what I dislike immensely about the miniseries. There are lots of things about it that I like, but the bottom line is they oversimplify and rush through yeah. and compress so much of what is incredibly complex and complicated mm. story.
0: It could easily have been twice as long. Yeah, They could easily have spent more time. It's, just, it, it's not an expensive thing to film. It's yeah. just a bunch of people talking in a room and some occasionally
1: a clown turns up.
2: Yeah, but they seem to have been a little bit wary about actually making it a horror story. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, they seem to didn't want to edit the plot as well, so they wanted to put everything in there that was in the book in terms of plot. Mm. So they basically rushed through everything. I'd rather them cut stuff out that mm. didn't need to be in there yeah. rather than half in it. Yeah. So. Henry Bowers, you he might as well not have been in the miniseries. I would rather him just cut him out because he had no impact on the plot at all. Mm. So just cut him out of the story. And I think if they'd have thought about that rather than trying to rush through the plot in three hours, mm. I think it would have been better for it.
2: Yeah, I think with the script writers they may have sat down, done a bullet point list yeah. of everything that happened that in the book sense. and then gone, should we bother expanding on this for the script now? Let's just work off the bullet points.
1: Yeah, Because you made that point about the scene where um, Henry Bowers is attacking Bev mm-hmm. and the bloke just walks inside just mm-hmm. ignores it and walks inside and there's not really any point in that in the mini series it's a brilliant scene in the book because we know what's happening why it's happening but it just seems to be there for the sake of it in the miniseries because that was in the book. There doesn't seem to be any context to it at all. It's a quick capsule, this is what
0: Derry is like, and now we'll move on.
2: Yeah, but then you lose all of the other examples that are littered throughout the book that tell you that this is what Derry is like, Mm. and that's why it's so insidious, that's why it's so terrifying, because they know they can't rely on any of the grown-ups.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, uh, the other three kids include Eddie Kasbrack, the uh, frightened asthmatic boy who uh, has been uh, using an inhaler that's effectively just a placebo for uh, most of his young life. Super Munchausen syndrome mother, uh, terrified of uh, her son coming to any kind of home. Um, it mentions a throwaway comment in the book that he's in the emergency room a couple of times a month. Emergency rooms are for emergencies. They're called that for a reason. She's um pathologically affected by a need to be important in his life. And at the same time, the way it's put across in the book, you kind of feel really sorry for her that she's stuck in this mindset. At least I I felt sorry for her that you know she's she really is trying to do right by her son, which a lot of the other parents aren't. And um unfortunately she's gone f- too far she's allowed the uh, uh, the superego to send her into a manic state
2: yeah she is very overprotective of eddie in a way that i think ben's mother would be as well if she could mm-hmm. but because of their circumstances she she works long hours and and isn't able to be quite as overbearing with him so she tries to compensate with food which is why ben is as big as he is mm. Um, but uh, but the the fact that her influence weighs on Eddie his whole life, and he in the book he ends up marrying a woman who is very similar to his mother yeah. in the t v series He is literally still living, living with his with mother, his mother. Yeah. but the point of that I felt was to to underline that idea of the the impact that their childhood has had on them, mm. and that kind of echoes the impact that their contact with it has had on them, but obviously that's the same thing for most people. The the their parental influences and, and what they went through when they were kids is the spine of who you are as an adult. Whether you were chased around your hometown by a scary clown or not,
1: well, I think that's what's affecting. I think that's why the book is so important to a lot of people. Is because it's about your childhood demons. You never get rid of them, really. You, you can think you have but you never really do get rid of your or demons so i think that's why it stays with people
0: stan uris is the boy scout who's obsessed with birds and he likes to think keep things ordered he's a neat freak and he is a germaphobe and he is only lightly covered in the uh, child sections of the book because of what steve decides to do with him early very early on to the point where you're like oh okay so you're gonna do that um so i guess we'll find out more about stan later nope Not that much. He's almost a bystander in most of the rest of the stuff, uh, which I was complaining to Sharon while we were listening. uh, Well, while I was listening just throughout the weeks, they, that King would have been better off conflating these seven characters into four or five. Having just watched stranger things, that's a really great focused, you know, four character um, drama, Uh, obviously most definitely influenced by this. Uh, and it felt like he'd divided the kids up so much that there were quirks where there should be characterization and that ultimately you could sort of fold those quirks into deeper characters dealing with more stuff and maybe just lose one or two here or there by reincorporating them. Obviously, you've got the magic seven, which is important, but it's less important than keeping focused.
1: I think that's certainly true in the case of Stan. I think rereading, I was, there's just not a lot there with him. I think mm. it's a great scene early on in the book when he's got rid of, but... There's never really a lot else to really hang, hang out on with him as a character to particularly...
0: I suppose yeah. St- Stan's the least of an outsider. In a, you know, he's Jewish, uh, but it's uh, sort of a, a good-humoured way. But um, So he's not really outcast by the town. He is the one who basically plays life, the game of life, and actually is pretty successful at it in his own way. They're all successful, but Stan is successful in a very boring way, in a kind of, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and he has a very unexceptional life. And then comes to that particular end and uh, it's it, it feels like uh, he's the road that they didn't travel.
2: I think in the book, this is not exactly stated explicitly, but my inference from it was that because Stan is the most ordered and possibly the least imaginative of the children, he's the one who sees it for what it really is possibly more than they do. Mm. And one of the things that, that Stephen King mentions a few times is that what what bothers Stan so much about it is not necessarily the horror of it, it's the disorder, it's the fact that it doesn't fit in the world that he knows. It shouldn't be like and this. And that's yeah. what he can't cope with. Um, and that's why he can't come back. Mm. Now, I don't think enough is made of that to make it absolutely essential that Stan is in the story. So I agree. If they, if it, any of them were going to be folded into the others...
0: If anything, what you're describing there makes for a really fascinating character that should most definitely have been kept around. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to make it seven, make it seven. You
1: know? Yeah. It's a bit harsh, thing. but it's ma- he's almost a red shirt, isn't he?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, he's there to make the numbers
0: up in, in a way, okay. um, for yeah.
2: for them to be lucky seven, yeah. and there for there to be somebody who gets killed off early on, mm. so that you outline what the stakes are. But
0: that's again that that lucky seven thing is just imposed by Steve himself. It didn't have to be that way at all. Well, that
2: that was something that occurred to me actually as I was um, as we were watching the the miniseries that basically you you do I mean. Spoilers ahoy, but you do lose them, some of them, Mm. over the course of the the story in various different ways. And ultimately, from seven on down, all those numbers are in some way significant and magical.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah um the the seventh is uh mike hanlon uh the uh black kid who uh is dealing with being black in the 50s and he's a very kind of stable very uh you know s- smart attentive to detail kid who just seems to be kind of baffled by the whole racism angle. And is just, why is it like this? And his father very deliberately tells him to not stick his neck out too much because he's very aware that, you know, any trouble they have to pick their battles, any trouble that they make could be fatal in this town. So, uh, you know, there's, he knows that there are people in the town, for example, Henry Bowers, father who will genuinely be out to get them. So, Mike has to contend with his father telling him to A, not run and B, not stick his neck out which is not very good in terms of survival day to day, you gotta go to school, and then when a monster confronts you, what then do you do? Mm.
2: But Mike's, I think Mike's crucial point in the story is that I actually think what you said about um, Richie's probably got the mo- the most stable parents out of all of them. Mike's are lovely. Mike's parents. Oh yeah, are no,
0: I'm not saying really... they're not lovely, but the point is that his father's giving him difficult advice. Yes, whereas Richie doesn't true. have to contend with his parents. Um, impeding him mm,
2: quite so much but but mike his his father basically making him learn about the history of derry yeah and that makes him a, a massive resource when it comes to knowing what's gone mm. on with it in the past and when they start to look into the fact that it's recurred every 27 to 29 years i think they work out the cycle is it varies a little bit mm. and he's the one who finds out about all the disasters that have happened over the years and and basically gets them to grasp the idea that this has been going on for centuries mm.
0: linked with mike hanlon to a degree henry bowers the the kid you said uh, that the bully that you said could probably be um Taken out was is it, painted as this you know genuinely horrible boy like who, who like the the worst bully imaginable. But there is a point in the book. There's several points where you find out how poorly his father treats him, how horribly he's treated, and, and that that is at the heart of a hell of a lot of bullies is, is terrible parental behaviour. Either the, the parent is abusive or uh, negligent in, in in some excess. The parent is abusive or negligent. And there's a point where Henry kills Mike's dog and goes back and tells his father, who has been pronounced crazy by the people of uh, Derry since uh, what happened to him during the war. And his father, for the first time in his life, um, congratulates him and gives him a beer. So Henry associates that. Uh, That beer is the best moment in his life and with approval and with love from this person who could not give him love or approval and only ever gave him um, fury. And I felt really sorry for Henry. And it's almost sad the the way that never really gets followed up on and henry never really becomes anything other than a a danger to the to the uh the rest of the kids he's manipulated and abused by everyone and he's this pitiful wretch of a figure but then he just dies (laughs) almost by accident when he's trying to you know later on and his gang he's got you know, Belch Victor, Chris, this guy called Most Belches. Uh, he burps. There's, there's nothing to his That's gang his thing. <laughs> except Patrick Hockstetter, who is barely mentioned in the mini series. And when you go, it goes into him in the book. My, my, it's bone chilling. My blood ran cold. Patrick Hockstetter is worse than Henry in that he is a stone cold psychopath who. And this is where Sharon, you must have gotten your understanding of of, of where where this mentality occurs—the idea that he doesn't believe that he's real, or if he's real, he's the only thing that's real, and nothing else is real—and so he has a very detached, very dispassionate uh, attitude to the world. The teacher, um, you know, has a problem with Henry Bowers, but you know, since Patrick just sort of goes through his school life very quietly, not really making any waves, but just very quietly being what we would perceive as straight up truly horrifically evil to the point where he murders his infant brother and it ain't no thing. Just does it while his parents aren't there and uh, then they find out later that the the brother has been smothered and uh, he's, you know, downstairs eating cookies and milk and it's just it doesn't affect him. He he, he just, his mechanism isn't there. And that's chilling.
2: I think what's the most chilling about that is that there is never any attempt on King's part to explain why.
0: Hmm.
2: Possibly in recognition of the fact that sometimes it is impossible to explain
0: why. Well, I mean, you know, his baby brother was born when, and he was being, uh, up until then, he was the apple of his parents' eye and then his baby brother was around and then they weren't paying attention to him quite so much. But, he's already a psychopath because mm. I was you say, know, yeah, we all have to deal with sibling itis <laughs> who don't become into become Patrick Hoxstether.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a
0: logical I, reason, but
1: not an emotional one, I think. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah indeed. But I think that's, that's important because you do get that explanation for Henry Bowers as to why he is the way he is. And... I, I always considered the the story of Patrick Hoxtetter to basically be a, a little bit of a sometimes there isn't a reason. Hmm. And it just...
0: Sometimes people are just irreparably broken from the beginning.
2: Absolutely. And I think it kind of underlines the idea not to expect everything about it to be explained. Hmm. There will be some things in this story that just don't get a reason you just
0: have some to. of the complaints will
2: be will false. Be false. <laughs>
1: um. Well, I think I think the other reason that Patrick Cox has in the story itself is because the way he thinks of himself and the way it thinks of itself yeah. I think are very very similar. Yeah. So it thinks of itself as immortal but it's having kids. Well, without spoiling too late on. Oh, no, no, you can say kids. it. Yeah. So
0: so it's and having kids it's, it's and then is it, is, is it, it dying and then moving on to it the,
1: and passing its nature on to the children or, yeah, or what? It would seem strange to be having kids when you're immortal. It yeah. doesn't seem to fit. So I I think that's there to say, is it what it thinks it is?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. And if you think about the fact that by that point, it's it's manifested itself in its spider form. Mm. That's what what happens with spiders is once the babies start to hatch, the mother is is that's it for her in, in a lot eaten. of cases she provides the the food for the babies mm.
0: Mm. which leads us inexorably to it uh characterized over and over again in the miniseries, uh only as pennywise the dancing clown uh, played by the great tim curry um almost or certainly he's going to be the highlight of most people's uh, viewing experience uh to me, after having read it, I was not disappointed, but it's it's such a completely different read on what I'd been having read. To me, there's a, a cold, dispassionate, matter of factness about the way that the uh, narrator was uh, reading all of uh, its lines. When Tim Curry turns up, he's basically being the Joker. He's being Freddy Krueger meets the Joker, and he's. Being charismatic and hilarious, and he's like, "Hiya, Georgie," and it's it's. He's also horrifying, but um, you know, when he comes out of the shower and then puts his head on his hand in that way, it's supposed to be terrifying. I did not find Pennywise the clown the least bit scary. When I was a kid, though, he scared the crap out of me. But as an adult, now that I've read it, this version of Pennywise, this version of it, is. A children's ghost train it's it's mild scares it's balloons it's a scary clown standing over there where you're not quite sure about it it's nothing compared to the uh, Lovecraftian dread that the book version of it summons up because this thing is effectively in the Stephen King universe Cthulhu it's it's a creature of the abyss that is so ancient and so ever living, and so beyond human rationality that to to comprehend it is to go mad. So you know, ultimately, that just him turning up as Pennywise, who is effectively Freddy Krueger by any other image, um, kind of normalizes him. He makes it; it makes him quantifiable. It makes him less scary and almost fun. In fact, relative to the possible election results we're facing right now, Pennywise the Clown is positively adorable.
2: Part of the point of Pennywise is that he is... He's a puppet, for a start. He's not the true reflection of it, although he is something that everybody who sees it... or not everybody. A lot of people who see it see the clown underneath. And... He represents to me at least the the part of the darkness that you want to go towards. He's the bait. He's the he's the face of
0: the lure.
2: The the lure, yeah. The thing that's supposed to reassure the children to get them to come close. Now, as we've joked about for years, the last thing you're gonna lure kids with is a clown, because yeah. they're
0: Especially not Something after it. Terrifying, Culturally speaking, speaking, clowns are scary as shit yeah. and people don't like them.
2: But he's he's the bag of sweets and the puppies at home that get you to go with the stranger. That's that's the idea. He's mm. meant to be vaguely fun and vaguely appealing. I think where the TV
0: series... They're going to have difficulty, by the way, in the adult version of these events, Mm. selling the clown as anything other than just horrifying. A 2016 kid with a a smartphone is going to look up from his phone, see a clown and go, fucking scary clown, and back to his angry birds. (laughs) Not going anywhere near that. Yeah,
2: indeed. But you don't get in the TV movie any thing lying behind that that is so sheerly terrifying that the next time you see the clown, you can't possibly ignore what it is that's yeah. behind it.
0: They could not sell the depths of it. No. That is blatantly apparent now to me as an adult. I think even if I hadn't read the book when watching it now, I'd think there's something more to this thing that they're not showing us or telling us. I wonder what it is in the book. Um, because especially when, when it, it's finally revealed in its spider form at the end, It's feeble, laughable. Oh, Sharon's holding her head in her hands. (laughs) I think we all are. One of the
2: single worst monster models I have ever seen in my entire life. That's. And I was a fan of the original Clash of the Titans.
0: That's a case of if you can't do it, don't do it. Don't you think in this scenario, if they'd shown. The model workers had shown the director the spider and he'd gone, you know what we're probably better off doing? Shoot that whole thing from the perspective of it and everybody's terrified of it, but you never see what it looks like. Because then people can come up with something way better than we can.
2: Absolutely. And even worse than that, this came out post-Aliens. Oh, yeah. Because the, the Alien Queen is very much similar to that final showdown with the... The monster.
1: Oh yeah. yeah it's he, like someone said told the writers, "Oh, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's really just a giant spider." So they decided that's what we'll do. Yeah, we'll, and it's we'll just, do a big yeah. thing
2: with <laughs> clacky clacky legs, and and it's mm-hmm. like, no, no, for a start, it's not all that giant. You clearly made it as big as you thought you could get away with, but it's nowhere near big enough.
0: Mm. It, it, the, 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 it's not about the size; it's about the presence. Mm. It's
2: too solid. It looks plastic. It sounds ridiculous.
0: It looks immobile and very feeble. And if you kicked it hard, it's going over. Imagine the guys. This is my current horror movie thing. Imagine the guys from the raid versus X. So, for example, the Cenobites—they're fucking dead. The guys from the raid just (laughs) taken to (laughs) pieces what sells it over time in the uh in the book is the genuinely upsetting murder of children the uh the murder of Georgie at the very beginning um this is going to be the part that's indelibly uh stamped on people's minds he looks down into a storm drain sees a clown going hey Georgie why don't you come down here we got balloons for you do they float oh yes They all float. He's, you know, fully um, jokering it, effectively, at that stage. I asked Sharon about what the whole floating thing was, because it seems to keep coming back to, you know, you all float down here, we all float down here. And her interpretation, I forgot to ask her during the show, but I'm going to say now, her interpretation of the constant referencing of floating is giving into madness, relinquishing control and allowing yourself to fall into the abyss. But since there is no bottom to that, you just float. You're no longer moving forward. You're no longer swimming. You're just a floating corpse, a shell of yourself.
1: Um, well, but Well, I thought when I watched the TV movie, I thought, right, I've not seen this before. I recognize it somewhere. And then it took about halfway through and I thought, it's Mark Hamill. It's Mark Hamill's Joker. That's oh, who yeah. it is. It is so Mark Hamill's Joker. And I like, thought, oh, well.
0: That's the irony looking. being, Tim Curry, about a year after this, was up for the role of the Joker, which Mark Hamill eventually got. Because mm-hmm. Tim Curry had been Captain Hook in Peter Pan and the Pirates. But they, his version was too close to Captain Hook. So uh, remember, of course, that. Uh, and as you can see, I'm a lot happier had just come out a year before. And uh, Nicholson's Joker was was indelibly in there. And he's the clown. So, uh, as it happens, from the sounds of it, watch the cinema awnings when you finally get to see It 2017. Because it's set in 89, there's uh, billboards for Lethal Weapon 2 and Batman. Um So maybe they can tie that in with, oh, like they're watching a classic scene from Batman and the never rub another man's rhubarb turns up and then the clown turns to the screen and talks to the children.
1: And the other thing about Pennywise, of course, to lend credence to what um, Sharon said earlier about the... um been an allegory for America, it's mentioned a few times in the book that he looks a lot like Ronald McDonald. So, yeah, again, yeah. that adds a lot of credence to that theory. I think it says that if Georgie had been
0: uh, had lived a little longer, he'd uh, equate him with Ronald McDonald because it was ever so slightly before McDonald's were huge. Mm. Yes. Um, but that actual sequence, as it's written in the book, is super powerful for two more reasons. One is... The uh, King's use of language and how he describes smells and sounds and tastes and, but specifically smells. He goes on and on about how rotten it smells and uses a lot of similes. It smelled like a 10 day old cat rotting in the sun. It's, you know, or it's, it smelled like a mouthful of Alex Jones's pickled scrotum. But, uh, he specifically mentions that when Georgie leans down towards the storm drain, uh, he can smell the circus. He can smell the peanuts that's being, that are being promised to him. And, uh, Uh, this really stuck with me the faint thunder of elephant shit which is a weird thing for a child to fix on but if you're remembering the circus you might not even be able to differentiate as a child at six Mm. what you're smelling but that that's there that really painted the picture and then the way it's horribly described he pulls georgie's fucking arm off and it's Agonising how long this takes. Uh, in in the, uh, the you know we're all scared of the, the, the that bit of the they all float. They cut mercifully away from that. There's no murder in this film, no, um, awesome. but in the book they he forces you to bear witness to it, and it's terrible, horrible to witness, and worst of all. Is the fact that he describes very accurately how as the clown's face transforms and he grabs Georgie and Georgie is pulled close, Georgie loses the last of his sanity. A six-year-old being driven mad at at the point of death. That's fucking bone-chilling.
1: Yes, it is. that, I think is that the first chapter in the book? Is that the very yeah, first geez. thing we read? Yeah. It's the first murder and it is incredibly Oh, he powerful.
2: starts as he means to go on. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. It's like you grabbed from that point on. I think King mm. knows how to start a book, so you, you yeah, carry yeah. on reading. It's it,
2: almost yeah. like a warning sign. If you mm. can get through this chapter without losing the contents of your stomach, you're good. If not, probably not for you.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's not done in a salacious way. He's taking no pleasure in Georgie's suffering at all. It's done, it's it's. It's portrayed as a tragedy, a accurately depicted tra- tragedy, mm. um, and
2: as are many of the, the yeah. horrible horrible deaths.
0: It is made abundantly clear that what it is doing is beyond despicable. Specifically preying on children. Very few adults buy it in this, mm. and
2: um, well, he it, it talks about the. the when you get the the few bits of the text that are from its perspective, um, it talks about the fact that it, occasionally it can prey on adults, but adults are a lot harder to snare, mm. and they're a lot harder to scare. That's part of it as well. The idea that um, that the that being terrified makes the meat taste better because this is a big part of it is it it feeds on the people that it catches, um, even though it doesn't strictly speaking seem to need. Physical nourishment, but it needs it needs something. It needs it's almost like a god that need God with a small G that needs the act of worship, and fear is the act of worship for it. And adults are harder to get that pure, clear terror from.
1: Well, I think some of I think the adults do die because in some of Mike's stories, there's tales of a lot of adults dying, but Mm. Pennywise seems to take pleasure in the killing of children mm. that it doesn't take the pleasure of the killing of adults, it does that because that's what it does, whereas the kids it really seems to relish it mm. Yeah, like they, makes everyone, the meat taste better
0: everyone who died at the black spot and the uh, yeah. the, the gang that gets gung down the, these are all things that happen to Derry's past but the mm. picking off of children is it's particular pastime mm. it's It's very elemental and it's scary to children, obviously. It's also scary to adults, afraid for their children and also flashing back to when they were children. Mm. This is why we suggested uh, last Halloween that if they're going to do Nightmare on Elm Street again, stop just giving us mouthy teenagers. Make it about children facing off against Freddy Krueger. Mm. And please, for God's sake, take the whole molesting angle out. Also, it would behoove them to maybe set it in the 80s to get that flavour back again because... Mm. Nightmare on Elm Street in an age of uh, s- <laughs> smartphones doesn't work quite as much, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, you can't fall. You don't want to fall asleep. There's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it'll keep buzzing to wake you up every ten yeah. minutes. But yeah, the 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 angle of it basically living on terror, I think, fits in with that whole mainly going after children because, like you say, that's how you scare parents. Is you threaten their children Mm. and that's what it's it's surviving on more than anything else I think Um, and this is something which isn't explored in the miniseries really at all the idea that Derry is what they discuss in the book is the fact that Derry is a small town in America that has inexplicably done better than many other small towns in America of similar size, location, Mm. industry pattern. And that it is an intrinsic part of that. That basically it's...
0: It's an organism.
2: Yeah, and it's made dairy successful. And the trade-off is the deaths And that's part of why this idea that the adults of Derry will not do anything, really, apart from talk about doing something about the murders. Because on some very, very deep down level, they understand that that's the sacrifice. And if they can't live with that, they leave. Hmm. But if they stay, they have to accept that that's the payoff. Some
0: of their children are getting eaten.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that's one of the things on the reread, I think, for me, elevated it above a lot of other horror stories. It wasn't just this monster lives in this town and it is killing people, which has been done a million times. It's It lives in this town and the people are complicit in what it's doing. I think that really elevates the story for me. What is it? because that's never
0: explored in the mini series and from there's a moment in the book which i actually think would have been better at the end it's somewhere around the middle of the book where uh, i think it's um bill gets visions of derry i think they're in the forest and he is transported back uh, in, within his mind, to a primordial version of Derry, a uh, uh, a very very long time, eons ago, before people were on the planet, and something crash landed there. It's not it's not really explained whether it came from another dimension or from outer space, and that thing was and remains it, and it dwelled and remained there, and the uh, the the settlement grew on top of it. Uh, it must have been preying on. People for miles around for for quite some time, or maybe it attracted people to it, lured them in on some subconscious level. I like that they don't go into it too much; it just hints at its incredible age and that it's been around. I think it's even at one point you get things from its point of view, and it's a fleeting moment. And it implies that uh, before the universe was made, there were only two things: the turtle and it. And the turtle is just this sort of... It despises the turtle. It's this sort of old fuddy-duddy, which made me think of the Discworld, especially since the turtle turns up and is like, hey, how's it going there, kids? And it's like, what? This is really inappropriate. But if you consider that um, the children are, in fact, being manipulated by the forces of light to destroy this force of evil that has gotten out of control once and for all... I mean, it's... It doesn't seem to be more out of control than it's been, but it would appear that now is its time to die and rebalance the world. Um, But yeah, the children are being manipulated to destroy this ancient Cthulhu thing that sat in this spot underground for pretty much forever in terms of the life of the earth. And uh, that's all this story really is. It's these poor kids being coerced by forces unknown into being pawns in a giant chess game. And it does the same thing. It manipulates Henry Bowers and his gang. It has his kids. That's an angle I would most definitely follow in the uh, new versions. Mm -hmm. Just get the cosmic level in there. Not even really necessarily say it, but just hint at it, give you an idea that there is something so huge, Mm -hmm. so powerful going on here.
2: Yeah, there is a passing nod to it in the TV series um, when it's it's not given enough time or enough depth it by any stretch of the imagination. But when Pennywise turns up in uh, mirage form when they're down in the sewers, he says uh, one of the most terrifying lines to me, which... It's just Tim Curry's voice is in my head for this is one of the things I am most scared of. But it's the, uh, I am eternal child, I am the eater of worlds and of children, and you are next.
0: And of children.
2: And that that eater of worlds, that is literally about the only nod that you get to how ancient and destructive this, you can't even really call it a beast, this being is. And I think... That what, what I got from the way that's all portrayed in the book and the way that the turtle is hinted at although the turtle is never really described in enough depth to quite grasp exactly what it is the turtle is not god it's it's not a it's not a god versus satan kind of story
0: oh it begins to suspect that there is another so yes. whatever forces of light are out there it is unaware of their specificity
2: yes absolutely um and there's also this idea that there may be something else that lies behind everything that that they are, that the turtle and it are. But the way it came across to me is, and this is where the sort of the Cthulhu feeling comes from, the idea that the turtle represents... The formative force in the universe, the idea that if, if living things are left unencumbered and unimpeded, their natural direction is growth, is evolution, is development, is, is becoming more complex forms. And it represents... The counter to that, which is the entropic tendency for everything to deteriorate and and destroy and become chaotic and fall apart and and become less complex. Basically, the idea of, of, you know, life waxes and wanes. Things grow and then they hit a certain point and then they die and they deteriorate. And that is part of a cycle. Um, And that's something that is kind of suggested very, very lightly in the book. And and one of the things that said is that the kids can't get their head around this idea. Because the the idea that it and the turtle may be a natural thing that, you know, one breath out, one breath in kind of process, but that it, this particular it, has become, as you say, out of control and, and it's, it's maybe got too much power from having its own little killing bottle in the form of dairy. Mm. And maybe that's why they have to destroy it because it's supposed to be a natural force, death after all and, and deterioration are natural forces if things don't die there's never going to be anything new but it's it's gone too far and i think uh, bill but, sums it up as all we know about it is it kills kids and that's wrong <laughs> because sometimes you have to simplify things yeah, they have They're to rationalize it also
0: people. his brother georgie was killed by it which gives him a very damn good reason to take it down yeah, absolutely but um it, this is reminded me of Donnie Darko, at least what Richard Kelly wants Donny to be to be seen as as being manipulated, and uh, his mother's reading it at the beginning during the Killing Moon.
2: It's set in the eighties.
0: Yep, it's, uh, it's set in eighty eight, so she's you know reading this two year old copy. There are two endings in the book because it, it conflates them in the mini series you get the ending down in the sewer at the end of act one. It's a, you know, it's technically a two act structure or or night one, if you're going to watch it over two nights. Uh, And this is supposed to come at the end of the book, which it's really frustrating because it's, it's, it's almost like, well, why didn't you just make it so that it's just the kids in this first one and then just the adults in the second one, like what they're doing with, with, with the films, because then when you go back to them as kids in the second part, it's like, well, hang on, was this after they dealt with it? Was it dead? Was it not? And it's just so clumsily done that it's, it it feels like they, they shot their load far too early with, with, they, they wanted a climax at the end of part one. Um, And they obviously, if you've read the book, left a huge controversial chunk out of that final confrontation. And I I asked Sharon about this last night because I was like, how the fuck are we going to handle this one? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sharon, do you want to describe but no she's screwing up her face no, no, no. and shaking her head no, no, no. i'm up not up. i'm
2: not saying okay i won't but right. it's it's really tough okay right. say
0: it in a clinical fashion and then explain why it's okay with you
2: <laughs> okay is a strong word yes yeah. okay <laughs> yeah.
0: okay well, right. it's, it's one of your favorite bits from the original book
2: yes or it was when it was i read then. it okay um, with the eyes of an adult it is very very different but
0: did you go back and reread it when yes yeah in in yeah. recently
2: now basically what happens in the, the the last third of the book intercuts between the children going down into the sewer to tackle it um and or i don't even think they go they don't go in no they do go into the sewer that's it and then the adults going back into the sewer to deal with it once and for all. They it, overlap. Yeah, they overlap. A lot of the incidents echo. So the, you know, and there's and there's this...
0: It's not an even odd... balance, by the way, between kids and adult no. material. It no, is about not. two-thirds kids' material. Mm. One, one that. It's, two, it's half kids' material, uh, one-quarter adult material, and a quarter of stories that you don't really need to know about, but they're about stuff that happens in Terry.
2: But the king uses this interesting narrative structure where he'll start he he breaks off mid-sentence at the end of sections and then will start the next center the next section with what could be the second half of that sentence so you really get this feeling of it all running together and that's and nice to know i
0: thought my audio audiobook was on the blink
2: no <laughs> no it's it's meant to be like that it makes more sense when you're reading it um so there's a, there's a part in the, one of the children's sections where they have effectively dealt with it for now. They've had their final battle. It's been wounded but not killed and it's disappeared into the darkness and they are making their way out. And they get lost. And it's dark and it's terrifying and the magnitude of what they have just done is starting to set in. And they are all shit scared. And basically they're starting to fall apart. They're really starting to lose their grip. And it begins to occur, particularly to Beverly, that if they don't in some way reconnect and ground themselves, they are not getting out of this. That they will wander around in the dark forever until they die. And she decides that what she is going to do...
0: In her 11-year-old wisdom. In her
2: 11-year-old wisdom, yes, this is the bit that's really difficult to go back to. She decides that the way to reconnect them all as a group is for her to have sex with all of them.
0: You still here, folks?
2: (laughs) Now... This this particular scene, reading it as a 13-year-old, is entirely different to reading it as an adult. Entirely different. Because when you read it as a teenager, when I... Sorry, I should not speak for other people. When I read it as a teenager, I was more in it than observing it. I, I connected more with the kids and their perspective... Than I do now as an adult, looking at it and going, "Jesus, Steve, what the hell were you thinking?"
0: I will bet you dollars to pesos this scene is not getting its way as written into the uh, 2017 film.
2: Absolutely, um, it's it's. Well, I was going to say it's not even hinted at in the in the mini series. They they find ways
0: to have Beverly hug and kiss everyone at different times.
2: Yeah, but the the point of the as scene, the point of the scene is it's to do with connection and it's to do with the emotional nature of what they're doing not the physical nature of it and it's not done in a way that i interpreted in my teenage mind as particularly it's not it doesn't didn't come across as Perverted or voyeuristic, or it's all from Beverly's perspective. There is never any doubt that this is her decision, her initiation. She Um, has to
0: cajole all the boys into it. Yeah,
2: which, which in a way, actually looking back on that, is is kind of bad because it's she's she's ultimately the reason that it even occurs to her is because she's been abused. And she then...
0: Uh, her father accused her of doing exactly that yeah, prior to this.
2: Indeed. And it is very uncomfortable looking at how she then kind of justifies it to all of them. Um, so it, it's a really, really hard scene to go back to. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't... It it is absolutely right that it should not be present in any modern retelling of the story. There are ways, especially now, that you can get that feeling of the necessity for emotional connection and a way to do it that does not necessitate um, that.
1: It's, to put a counterpoint to what Sharon says, when I was young and I read it, I'm not sure I knew what to make of it. And when I read it again, I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it. So I don't think my view is any different to what it was before. It just, it seems to come out of nowhere as well. It's not like they were building to this moment. It's not they like Beverly been thinking about it and planning it. And when's yeah, the right and time? And it didn't, it's not like, because my memories of it were a little bit different in the sense that I seem to th- thought it was done to get rid of it in some way, to tackle it. But it's not. It's not really done that way. It's done after they've already fought it, and it just seems to come completely out of nowhere, mm. just so they can find the way. It's a little bit odd. It's it's actually beautifully written. I think it has to be said, mm. it's so well written. Yeah. That it, to come across so we can discuss it and say it doesn't come completely weird and creepy, it could have come across a lot worse than it does. But I don't really know why it's there, and... I'm not entirely sure what King was trying to get at with it. Mm. We already know these kids are close. We don't need another scene to sort of hammer that home. We've spent so much time with them. It's just, I don't quite get it. It didn't hurt the book sales either. Mm. Mm. But Mm. in,
2: in a way, it kind of... Another reason that I would like to see it done differently in a modern take is that it does reinforce that idea that for this group, which is primarily boys... To have that incredibly important emotional connection between them, they have to do it through a girl. Mm. Which yeah. isn't true. I would and I would really like to see a reinterpretation um find some way of allowing there to be direct emotional connection between them all um, that that doesn't necessitate that. There's actually a really lovely scene in the in the miniseries where um, they it, it happens well before this, actually. It's when Bill says that he wants to kill it because it killed Georgie and he asks them all for help. And they all come over to him one by one and they all put their arms around each other's shoulders so that they're standing in a circle with their heads bowed in towards each other. And there's this wonderful little pattern that you can see. That it's almost like a Celtic knot of all their arms twining around each other. And I think that gets across... What that scene was supposed to communicate very simply, very straightforwardly and without the necessity for felonies to be committed.
1: The only positive, because I, I, I was thinking about what I was going to say about this scene and the only positive I could, because I didn't want to just slag it off. I thought Beverly as a character, her abuse from her father, basically part of that is he owns her and owns her sexuality. yeah. yeah. And a, there is a part of it of her taking that sexuality for herself. Yes,
2: absolutely. But
1: that would have worked better if she was even two years older. Yeah. It's in puberty, 11. I just, it's, she's eleven. She's not hit puberty yet. She's not. There's no hint that she's approached puberty, unless I'm. I'm misremembering. I no, don't. No,
2: no. I think you would. Any right. It's. Scene. I mean, girls do mature a little bit faster than boys generally, but eleven is still pretty young mm. to be kind of even on the. I mean, thinking about this kind of thing. Speaking as a girl who has been eleven, yes, absolutely. But actually, being on the cusp of engaging in anything like that. Um for the most part I I it, it doesn't feel um quite right reading it back. Although as I said, reading it as a teenager it it connected completely. Well completely. It it connected mostly. Um
0: the it doesn't come out of nowhere in terms of sexual content of the book. The, there's many points in the book where uh, King references something sexual. A lot of the time when the children are, are present. And every time for me, I was just, what? What are you thinking? That um, Turns out Henry Bowers is uh, in the Barrens, um, the, Barons, the uh, sort of the waste ground that they're um, playing in, uh, getting wanked off by Patrick Hoxted, the
1: uh, psychopath.
2: That's another reason why I think Patrick Hoxtest is probably not in the TV series.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think he's been cast for the new movie, though, hasn't he? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I believe
0: yeah. so. So, uh, you know, if he's uh, part of part of what... He, this is also intermittent with the, the, the Bowers gang lighting their own farts. And it, the King slaloms between juvenilia and um, the idea of this repressed homosexuality amongst a gang of bullies done in a fairly crass way. Uh, And Patrick Hoxteder, by the way, when he finally buys it, it's, oh, he gets it the worst. Of everyone in this who dies, he gets it the worst. He gets, basically, um, he's keeping uh, animals in an old fridge so that he can torture them. And when he opens it up, it's full of, like, tiny little parasitic, like, pink slug things flying leeches, flying leeches there, basically um, that fl- swarm him fly out and attack him and then start sucking blood out of him and growing fat and engorged and bursting and just basically oh god his blood's flying everywhere and he's just running and screaming and like his eyeball collapses because not some of them sucks oh. the juice out of all that his tongue explodes it's it's basically Please like stop. yeah sorry <laughs> but this is Stephen King going karma motherfucker (laughs) karma
2: it totally is but there is actually a narrative reason why that has to happen Mm -hmm. you think about how little emotional connection Patrick has Mm -hmm. how do you terrify somebody like that
0: well the the idea is as it's happening you know he is the only thing that exists and he's about to not exist which is terrifying yeah
2: so he's flooded with this fear that the entire world is going to disappear if he dies
0: yeah basically he's the Red King Uh, and Beverly um, notices Beverly bore witness to the the wanking off and then the the horrible explosion of Patrick. Um, But there's other bits where um like she and bill actually have sex in as adults uh, in a hotel room um when they they're finally together and uh, it actually mentions that when bill gropes down into her panties he you know he knows that he's going to find pubic hair at last and it's like wow wow just i mean did Such that cuz well and <laughs> There's a point where at one point someone says uh, that the hairs on his lip were kinky, like his father's pubic hair. And it's like, what? what why would a child think that? Uh, it, it's uh, And then, you know, like, uh, Ben popped a boner. and it's like, Do we need to be talking about child boners at this point? You know, just and his penis was hard in his pants. And obviously being read this by an American man with a thick accent, not a thick main accent, and his penis was hard in his pants, you know.
2: Oh, you wouldn't want to go down that road. To go
0: that road. I just, there's far too many moments where I'm like, Stephen, why? Why this? Why now? Is it shock value? Is that what you're doing this for? Yeah, man. Kids think about sex. Deal with it.
1: I've read too much Stephen King and all that stuff, just, just like it's part of the course. <laughs> <It> just, no, <laughs> just, that's very true. I was thinking me. something well,
2: similar, actually. The it's, pubes plus, wash over you. It's not, I don't think it's really for shock value because it just becomes the norm so quickly when you're reading Stephen King stuff.
1: Like Sharon, I'm a fan of the um, Song of Ice and Fire series and he's still better at writing sex scenes than George R. 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 Martin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, like I said, this, this... This controversial sex scene at the end, which was obviously avoided like the bubonic plague in the uh, miniseries uh, it, it, the the sex aspect of the book doesn't come out of nowhere but this it it's still there is a way to do it. In the two thousand seventeen and twenty eighteen films uh, for the the children and the adults, which is that you have uh, a similar level of intimacy for the kids and it is effectively a grounding ceremony with Beverly as the high priestess bringing them back down to earth after they 've been dancing across the abyss, so it is relevant there mm-hmm. you know so ultimately just a lot of deep kissing without it being sexual
2: or even just even just holding each other. Honestly, if it you could you could sell it well enough. You
0: could do it innocently, with withholding each other. Yeah, yeah.
2: and, and it's, if it's, you
0: absolutely have to have that level of sexual intimacy, though, there is absolutely time for, uh, for for Beverly as an adult to do that with the adult men. There's not a huge amount to say about the adult section of the book. There is a lot of reflection. There is a lot of them talking to each other about the past. The, uh, when Mike, who's been documenting the new murders, uh, starts calling them on the phone, the, uh, yeah, they all start remembering what the thing is that after 27 years, they've all actually forgotten the horrible things that have happened. They've been mercifully, um, robbed of all of this. It's not been dwelling with them so that they could function as adults. None of them have had children, but they've all been very successful. It's almost like they've been given, uh, Bonus good luck for being able to defeat it that first time.
2: <laughs> A dairy extension.
1: I'm not sure what that means. What? What's your guy's take on that about them all being successful? That just seems to be there. And he's, again, he seems to be getting at something, but I'm not entirely sure what he's getting at with that they're all successful, but what's that got to do with anything? Is there a reason
0: for that? It would stand to reason that if the, the forces of light manipulated them into doing that, they would know that the thing, it was not dead, and then they were going to have to bring them back at some point. So might as well keep them safe. Mm. And in the meantime, if any of them really fall on hard times, that's going to break up the circle. If one of them, for example, becomes a drug addict and overdoses. And can't,
2: or, or can't come back because they can't afford it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I kind of always interpreted it. As the idea that they are still of Derry, until it is finally defeated, they're basically they've they've moved away, but they've been let away on really really long leads, hmm. and they're still affected by this thing that keeps that maintains Derry's success. Oh, man, how do you measure
0: success? Most people in Derry just run general stores and yeah, libraries well, no, and but stuff. It's not like they're not movie stars. No,
2: but the the town is is generally speaking economically successful. But no, you're right. I mean, it still has a poor. They could end.
0: Henry Bauer's father lives right on the bread line. He's absolutely poverty stricken. He he lives smack bang in the middle of Derry, whereas the losers gang go out all across the U.S. and are extremely successful businessmen. Yeah. They could end up running a, a relatively successful hardware store mm-hmm. or something. It's yeah. they uh, they actually have. Measurably successful within the context of the 80s, yeah. As people who don't live in a small town, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Beverly has a, uh, a clothing business. Um, Bill is a as with a lot of Stephen King characters, <laughs> Bill is a writer, a horror of writer. horror <laughs> books. And, and it's
1: also got a brilliant ponytail as well.
0: Yeah. Yes, he has it's a <laughs> sharp ponytail in the, in the, uh, the, the um. Miniseries. series mm. uh, Richie is a comedian, despite the fact that the com- the guy playing him is not the least bit funny. He really and isn't. He looks exactly... If you ask me... If you ask a room for a 100 people to draw a paedophile, there would be many, many things that that paedophile had in common with this guy playing Richie Tozier. He's sort of tall and, and, and with watery eyes and sort of gingery hair and a sort of a ratty little moustache that really pulls it off and the way he dresses and the way he sort of leers um but the, like i was like billy crystal is exactly the right age for richie tozier so at least uh, back back in those days for 1990 that you, you get a guy who's actually genuinely funny and people go oh, i recognize that guy but instead they get th- this guy i can't even name and uh that was an oversight
2: I personally think they spent everything they had on John Ritter and
0: Richard yeah. Thomas. <laughs> well, um, Stephen King insisted on John Ritter. Really? He really, really wanted oh, r- wow. John Ritter to play. Uh, uh, um, specifically Ben, though.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, that's... That it, like listening to it did not immediately strike me as that this has got to be John Ritter, but uh, you know, King was clearly a fan.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, it's a shame Seth Green wasn't given more to do as Richie because he seemed that seemed because I didn't really know he was in it and his name popped up and I thought, oh, yeah. that must be Richie Tozier because he yeah. just seemed to fit. Mm. But he wasn't really given much to do as a dozen. He's fucked ton funnier than the adult Richie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. do
2: wonder though if that scene where the werewolf comes after him um, tied in with the fact that he went on to be a werewolf in. Buffy Buffy
0: Yeah You don't want to go down that road they got teen wolves down that road Bit him on the way A lot of the kids in the 50s Their fears are informed upon by the movies at the time So you've got the mummy The gill man And the teenage werewolf All turn up uh, in in Derry And to terrify various kids The gill man from the Black Lagoon Straight up fucking decapitates a kid and then feeds on him. It, it, that's going to be difficult to do. Like, for a start, they won't do that in the 80s version because um, their monsters are different. Mm. It would be cool to get the alien in there. <laughs> Seriously. The oh, kids...
2: my God, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if it turns up and it's a friggin' xenomorph... That makes sense. It's be,
2: right, there's going to be That's the xenomorph. teenage werewolf of there's the gonna 80s. There's going to be Freddy Krueger. Yeah. There's going to be Michael Myers. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, get some Jason on your ass. Mm.
2: Yeah, so it's basically that's what kids were afraid of in the '80s. Todd McFarlane's movie monster mm. series.
0: And uh, frankly, he should also dress as Jack Nicholson's Joker. Um but yeah, yeah. so uh, Richie Tozier is a very successful comedian, despite the fact that he's not funny. Ben Hanscom runs a limo business. No, Eddie no, does. Eddie uh, Eddie's an architect. A limo. Ben's an architect, The superstar architect. Eddie runs a limo business and lives with his mother.
2: Ben got his picture on the front of Time magazine.
0: Hmm. Stan Euris is the probably the guy who has the successful hardware store. Um, he's an accountant. Accountant. I think. Uh, but then when this scene in the book goes on forever and a day. Uh, he fi- gets the call from Mike, who has stayed at home and stayed in Derry and worked in the library and has been assembling. But well, Basically, he's the one who kept the fires, b- home fires burning. Stan finds out, goes upstairs and goes, oh, OK, and cuts his wrists in the bath, uh, which is uncomfortable in today's day and age because it's labelling... A major reason to commit suicide being just fear and fear being understandable, but he's just still checking out, which makes him a yellow chicken, which this is an uncomfortable theme to be handled in this book in this way. And it's everyone's very sad about it and everyone can understand that Stan wouldn't come. But the idea that Stan straight up kills himself uh it's obviously it's it's a way of of selling that the that it is still has a very powerful hold over the adults still scared of what they they were scared of as children but the way this is handled
2: mm, no i i agree i think it's it's there's a a point where mike later on um and this is in the the tv series i can't remember exactly how it's discussed in the book but Mike says to Bill that there was a point a few years ago where he'd, because of more of a, a building sense of dread and things going wrong in his life and things going badly for him, he things got very dark and he thought about killing himself. And that, to me, seemed to be a more real representation of suicidal thoughts and where they can sometimes Mm. come from and how they can, they can manifest themselves rather than it being your life was fine because this is the thing. Stan's life is absolutely fine. Everything is, you know, other than this stuff that happened when he was a kid, he moved away. Everything seems to have gone tickety-boo up until now. Um, Although there's always been this kind of thing in the back of his head that there was, there's something's not quite right. And that he's, his. immediate instinct when he is faced with having to go back into that is to as you say check out it just doesn't quite work for me and it, it may well tie in with the whole thing about Stan not really being all that necessary anyway um in oh, terms the spare. of the story that's of the great
1: well I think there is I think the one part in the book where I think something is done for shock value I think this is probably mm-hmm. where you'd put it it's it is a shocking moment. I remember being shocked. It's one of the most memorable parts of the book for me when I first read it. But I think you've got a fair point that it's not necessarily any digging deep enough into what caused him to commit suicide, and really, it's just there for shock value. Well, they and milk. I, I think for sh- it works, but um, but yeah, that's all it is. He
0: milks the shock. His, his you know, Stan's wife is sort of walking up the stairs going, Stan, he never takes baths without me. Stan never closes the door when he's going to the bathroom. Stan, do you want a beer? No answer. Stan never doesn't answer when I ask him if he wants a beer. It goes on forever. And then she eventually opens the door and we get a super slow version of what it's like in her head to witness her poor husband having killed himself in a bathtub. And um, that's actually done as the... Uh, the finale of the first part in the miniseries, which actually that works better as the, so that would be a, a good beginning of the adult film. I think that's what they'll do. They'll, they'll have Georgie's death at the beginning of the, uh, the kids film and then stands at the beginning of the adult film. Uh, it'll still be troubling as fuck, but I suppose it kind of makes sense that that's where you know they they mirror each other. In the book, it comes way too early to the point where you like you never really invest in Stan because a you know he's going to die, but b you never get. I was expecting to really feel sorry and and like feel like that that Stan throwing Stan checking out at that exact point was a terrible terrible waste of somebody who was actually a vibrant character. But it's, nah, I can't really be bothered to write this guy. He's a mm. Boy Scout.
2: It might have worked better if Stan had been terrified and couldn't face going back, mm. and because he couldn't face going back, something killed him.
0: Maybe. Or I, I, I think it would have worked better with fewer characters and one, have one person genuinely consider suicide mm. as a genuine idea, but not do it ultimately keeping it in the background as that is always an option Mm. i need to have that there for my level of control so that i can get through this that would have been a mature look at suicide because ultimately suicide for a lot of people is something you have to live with as a very real possibility rather than just something that just happens because you're depressed it's something that lives with you hmm the miniseries Let's just discuss its, uh, its successes And failures because ultimately we were Commissioned to discuss the miniseries Itself <laughs> um, I- I'm assuming Nick you know, found this uh, uh, Hugely entertaining Or powerful and like this had a big impact on him um, I can understand why as a, as a kid when I saw it it was creepy as hell And it was epic in length I was used to two hour movies not three hour movies If that And um, the clown did Creep me the hell out uh Now, though, after watching it, I just felt that was a very deficient adaptation mm. A lot of the time, it felt like they were very reliant on balloons and appearances <laughs> of Pennywise just in the background it's like hey i 'm Pennywise the clown, and like suddenly you didn 't expect it, but Pennywise is here. And like, really, just milking the old Pennywise mm. for it's a children and lot adults. Of
2: blood as well. Like, yeah. it's like we can't show terrible, horrible murders happening, but we can show you blood. Yeah, you can see blood. Blood comes happening. out
0: of a sink like Billy Young.
2: Yeah, and a book and balloons explode and blood goes we'll all over the place and there's blood yeah. in a teacup and yeah.
0: which was shit in the book by the way. She goes into a little old lady's house that's now living in her old house and it's a really genuinely unnerving both section of the book. And in the – because what they're doing most of the time in the book rather than – in the miniseries rather than giving you, uh, you know, gore and horror, they're making you unsettled and unnerved and doubt what you're seeing. And this is a prime example of of Beverly um, being presented with a series of very complex illusions until this little old lady basically descends into a horrible demon woman. And yeah, uh, you know, she's surrounded by grave rot, and uh, and runs from the house, which turns out was boarded up and dilapidated. And uh, ultimately, I think Annette O'Toole does pretty damn well with Beverly.
2: She is pretty good. I, I liked her performance as Beverly. Right. I think she got some shocking script to deal with from mm. time to time. Um, but generally speaking, I thought she did very well. There's a, a particular moment in the scene where she's leaving Tom, her husband, mm. um, and it's nowhere near as, as violent as it ends up being in the book, um, where in a very, very satisfying moment, she smacks him in the balls with a belt. Oh, yeah. Um oh
0: and Tom pursues her in the book. Yeah. He just keeps going. He he horribly abuses and mistreats a friend of hers just to get information on her. Chases her, gets on the gets to the airport, flies to Derry, tracks her down,
1: stays at a hotel,
0: turns up in the sewers at this climax at the end and then dies. Yeah. It's like what what, the, what what's the point of all that?
1: that? That was the guy from the Shining film, wasn't it, who <laughs> traveled, come back and then just got stabbed oh, killed with an axe. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Except for the fact that, like, he was—he like—that's almost a sort of a, a false hope. Like, you know, you know, you, you've been told that this—that sort of kindly old wizard in The Shining is there to help you. And in the book, of course, he did. But Kubrick's like, uh, nah, let's just fucking kill him. Mm. And then, so it becomes this false hope, then dispatched, so that you've got a horrible body count for the film, as opposed to only Jack
1: dies. Mm. Uh, uh, but. Um, Incidentally, the um, that character Dick O'Halloran, I think, yeah, he, he does turn in up. It, it. yep, it's yeah, he's so, in the black is, spot. I yeah. did
0: not notice that until uh, Sharon mentioned that that you know that they queued up the name. I was like, that was him. He got out of a burning building because he was having all kinds of shinings. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I liked that. Yeah. So yeah, no, rather than it, it being a false hope that then gets snatched away because you just assume that he's going to save the day and then he doesn't it's the other way around it's a false threat which like oh my god this is going to be terrible Is like oh no, he wasn't that much of a threat at all really Mm. even Henry Bowers like when he knocks on Mike's door it just seems to be a way to, to remove Mike from the scene but not actually kill him he stabs Mike because, you know, fulfilling his lifelong dream to kill a black person but uh, doesn't manage to kill him and then in the wrestling stabs himself and dies. So, uh, Henry Bowers um, was committed to an insane asylum and basically after following the kids down and seeing into the death lights of, uh, of it when it confronts the them. The lights. The dead lights, sorry. They make a big deal about the deadlight. I think that might be their concession to it being much bigger than just the clown mm, in the miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. It's just constantly going on about the deadlights and that what happens to Belch—he gets folded in two and then pulled backwards through a pipe—is actually kind of creepy as hell. Just the fact that he's uh, tr- transfixed at the time mm. rather than screaming in pain.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, Henry Bowers lives his whole life. Uh, In a a mental institution, having been accused of... uh, I think they pinned all the murders Murders of the children in Derry on him. Uh, And uh, then (laughs) to get out, he tries to... Well, his orderly, Koontz... (laughs) (laughs) fans of Dean Kuntz would go, what? How have you made this this horrible orderly Dean Kuntz? um, Turns up, he's about to hit Henry with a roll of quarters, and then the clown steps out, and hilariously turns into a Doberman, who then jumps on the orderly, and you get this wonderful kind of, no! moment as the camera goes backwards over him. It's... I mean, you know, it's, it's less hilarious than you'd imagine a Doberman wearing a clown costume. Like, literally a dog who's been coaxed into a clown costume for a few seconds before it jumps free. So it's a Rottweiler, not a Doberman. Rottweiler. Would look like, but it's still clumsy as all hell. There's some times in the book where they're like, you know, if you can't actually adapt this exactly, you might want to change some things. Or just not put it in at all. Mm.
1: I think that would, that would be my attitude to the miniseries in general. If you mm. don't have to include everything, just because it's in the book, doesn't have yeah. to be there. You've got three hours. Edit. And there's but,
0: mm. yeah, there's super reliance on balloons turning up like that. The, the adults are sort of wandering around, and then they turn around slowly, and there's a yellow balloon there, and the echoing sound of laughter. The fortune cookies when they go, they all meet at a Chinese restaurant. Beverly faints immediately, and. <laughs> Um, when they open the fortune cookies oh my oh my there's an eye and then like uh, there's they've got various like little creep show uh, moments you know if I was editing together the second film I would have that moment come at the exact point when um, uh, Stan is discovered in the tub just this like creeping lurking you know when's it gonna come out and then when it does come out it's suddenly boom in two different places at once just just to, uh, to to hammer home, it has new ways of getting to you.
1: I think my fa- one of my favourite bits of the series, I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it's maybe at the start of the second half, mm-hmm. is where Bill first comes into town and Pennywise is in the graves. And he's got Stan's grave at the end, but obviously Bill yeah. doesn't realise at that point it's yeah. Stan's grave. Mm-hmm. And he's just taunting him, mm-hmm. and it's like, now I'm still here, and I'm going to... I just that, find that moment much creepier than all the blood. Hmm. All the blood, just it's like, well, it's more blood. But that, for me, is, is really a highlight. And I, I just think it's there's something really creepy about, like, well, I'm here. I'm, I'm confident that I can get you all. I've got one of you. You're next. And I think it less is more. I think with some of these things. And I think going all overall over. over overkill on the blood really I think hurts particularly the second half where it's it's just blood Uh, let's have an idea let's just blood more blood some balloons Balloons,
0: head in a fridge when Stan's head turns up in a fridge it's supposed to be Stan as a child but they went for a Stan as an adult so as not to traumatise the child um and, uh, yeah, it, 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 they they then, like, Stan goes into a comedy routine. That's, like, it would make more sense if that was Richie's head. Yes. But, I mean, they, they have to sell fears of adults, which are kind of more abstract. And that's the thing. The children are scared of monsters that they see in horror movies. The adults, especially childless adults, their fears are far more abstract. They're far more kind of, you know, I, I'm afraid that that the world is running out of time and that, that the civilization may crumble right um uh, that's going to be a little difficult for me to sum it up in terms of uh, uh <laughs> illusion uh, how do you feel about uh, uh frankenstein
2: yeah it's almost like he's playing pictionary and somebody's asked him to draw existential dread <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> there's a there is a reason why um he's Pennywise. it would appear that a circus came to Derry a couple of hundred years ago and there was Bob the dancing clown there and it would I would infer from that that Bob became a a tool of it and went on a fucking killing spree. Uh. In fact Bob's actual appearance as a clown made it particularly easy to lure children in and it hadn't really done that before.
2: What that's a really interesting take
0: and that was when it became addicted to children
2: yeah and also because it's it's been unable to really update its comprehension of what the world yeah. is it's carried on using the clown
0: yeah and it's like you still got clowns right yeah there's still clowns around <laughs> i've seen him on billboards okay this time we're doing clowns again so when it turns up in the 80s it's like you still got clowns right you know these are like the, the, their specific costume design they've made him look almost elizabethan it's it's many hundreds of years old rather than what you would expect uh, a standard clown to look like, which I think is more unsettling. Mm. So uh, what I'm worried about is that the new movie will be a bunch of jump scares because that's the way that uh, modern horror seems to be. Uh, yeah. the, the idea of bah! And like big
1: stings, so we're gonna get I am sting after sting. Pennywise is too scary, so they make if they make Pennywise too scary, mm. it's just not gonna work, is it? Because he needs to be luring kids in, and if he's just scary clown, yeah. you'd be, be like, easy.
0: Well, why are you kids coming going anywhere near that thing? Mm. That yeah. I, I suppose they could, um, th- there are ways to sort of change it up, but uh, I, I, I hope. What I was thinking while I was watching it is that you could do incredible things with music and sound to really sell this entity, to give it a sense of weight and to make it genuinely horrifying, like madness-inducing for the people who bear witness to it in a way that's not funny at all. And you definitely, sure as shit, want to make sure this is an R-rated film. You do, that courting? I mean, you could do it with PG thirteen. But the miniseries, in other words, major failings is it is so coy mm. about it's, it's anything.
2: Very made for TV.
0: It's it's scary in a kind of creepy way, but it's it's I. What do you think of actual the Pennywise in this, Alan? I've,
1: I've I've said a lot about Tim Curry, but um, uh, well, I I think he's really the highlight, I think for me is is his performance. It's every time he's on the screen, I think again we can pick faults with the way they've done pennywise in general but is by far the most captivating performance on the on the screen in this series it's difficult to imagine if a lesser performance was there if it wasn't so captivating this would really it would be very very difficult to watch mm. although it was
2: very flat without it
1: it would it would be yeah bland but that's a great word for it because i think although I can't say I, I thought it was a good three-hour watch. I did I pile through it. I didn't. I didn't struggle to get through it, and I think that a lot of that is down to Tim Curry's performance because every time he was on screen, you took notice of it. Um, it it didn't become annoying where it could have been really annoying. Like Richie's performance is so annoying. Again, it's a clown. If you go too far with it, it's annoying, and I, I don't think he ever went that far with it. And I think is actually really other than the the terrible ending with the spider I think the Pennywise character really I think comes across quite well actually in the in the series hmm. um, um, and what,
0: what's good about aside from Pennywise about the miniseries what are the successes
1: Sharon, do you want to go? <laughs> um, <laughs> There's,
2: there are a handful. I mean, I think ultimately, as you said way back at the beginning, Alex, uh, Jonathan Brandis's performance yeah. as, as young Bill is fantastic. Emily Perkins doesn't do badly as, as young Bev.
0: Yeah. The kids um, themselves together as a unit are, yeah. are, are lovable. You mm-hmm. want them to succeed.
2: Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, Annette O'Toole's performance is, is great and... Uh, there are these these little moments that really work i just think it's coalescing them all together that's difficult because it feels so rushed mm. um and it's 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 tough to pick out individual parts that that really work well although like i said there's the there's a few lines that um tim curry delivers that are absolutely chilling mm. and and resonate even now um
0: the scene in the with uh, georgie in the storm drain is genuinely uh like gut churning even without with the cutaway which frankly is merciful because mm. watching it would be horrible and i'm not looking forward to watching it yeah
2: yeah
0: um it's true
2: I do quite like as well the the parallel between the the way the kids come together and just have fun together as kids, uh, when they're young. The scene where they're building the dam, mm. and then you've got a slight parallel when they all get together for the Chinese meal when mm. they get arrived back in Derry, and they're all kind of it's music playing. You don't hear what they're saying, but they're basically joking back and forth around the table, mm. and they seem to be sort of reconnecting and, and feeling that they're they're back with their friends again. They're back with their their club, which is nice, and I like that um, the way that connect the two eras together
1: I really like the scene with I think you mentioned it earlier with Bev going back to to her house I think that works well I think it, again it's ripped straight from the book but again it works well in the series as well but for me it's just I think they're individual good bits I, I didn't like the bits with the kids I think I have to disagree there I just didn't like any scenes with the kids it just for me didn't work um, I think you're right Jonathan Brandis had a great performance but I didn't like any of the other kids, really. I think they either had nothing to work with, or in particularly with Ben Hanscom, the kid playing him, I thought was awful. I think he's arguably creepier than Pennywise in this, this series. Um, <laughs> well, I, again, I think, I think it's partly <laughs> a product of, of him, but it's, an, it's partly a product of, again, rushing through things where his loving Bev from afar comes across as creepy and stalkerish rather than actually where he's watching her reading the poem Mm. Mm. it doesn't come in the book it's so sweet and romantic and it never ever gets to any level of creep but for me it does in the in the series and it's really i think it's unfortunate but for me i've struggled to find anything really positive to say about the bids with the kids. I think it gets better when it's just the adults. I think the scene in the Chinese when they're all laughing and joking, although it's with music, again, I think that works. It looks like a bunch of friends getting together. Um, I quite like the special effects in general. I know it's they're old-fashioned, but I quite like the special effects except the spider at the end. I think they generally work okay. Um, but again, it says just everything's rushed so much the heart gets lost, I think, along the way. Hmm.
0: As Alan said earlier, the scenes of domestic violence are far more horrifying than anything supernatural because they feel far less simple to escape from. Beverly's life is wound around that of her father and later Tom and she can't separate her love for them from everything terrible that they do. Even more gut wrenchingly upsetting, though, is the case of a young boy whose father beats him and regularly injures him, his wounds and breakages noted by his school teachers. The lowest point for me comes when this man beats his child to death for spilling paint in the garage, ignoring his cries of, I love you, daddy, please stop. This scenario goes beyond a nightmare for me and taps into a deeply rooted, white-hot rage I hold for those that abuse and destroy the helpless, especially children. This is the darkest aspect of man, and it doesn't take a demonic force to bring it out of him.
2: Help me. You killed my brother George, you bastard! Let's see you now. Let's see you now.
1: It's scared of us, you know. I can feel that. I, I swear to God I can. I,
2: I want to kill it.
1: Help me. Please, help me. Help me.
0: There's one major thing that's missing, and that's a monologue. I think that by and large, films are, and in the case of TV as well, afraid to add a a narrator to proceedings because people will become disengaged. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, a narrator for a novel like this and an adaptation like this is downright essential. Uh, There are plenty of films with a narrator which is uh, uh, definitely improved by it A Christmas Story, Fight Club. Shawshank Redemption Shawshank Redemption Clockwork Orange uh, they they are they benefit from that God voice and that level of connection with a person uh, this film could have had a bunch of narrators frankly
1: well the, the guy who plays Mike Hanlon could have easily narrated it because he's got a, easily, yeah. he's got a great great voice so mm. Again, he would have fit perfectly as a narrator because he, he, to a certain extent, narrates the book. Yeah, with, giving you the history uh, of Derry and
0: why these yeah. kids are significant. Just, and and you would be able to sell things that the kids would not with an adult voice saying, you know, finally together as seven, Bill Denbrough felt, and all of them felt, something significant had occurred after the, the apocalyptic rock fight, which in the miniseries not nearly as apocalyptic as we may have led you to believe um is you know when they're finally seven that's a huge moment and there's like frankly you need like a, a a wind to rush across them as suddenly these pieces are all in place and it's not given that level of significance but with narration you can add perspective from adulthood mm. to that
2: i think you're right that absence of internal thought process is a, a major part of why the characters are not sold anywhere near as mm. as uh, comprehensively as they are in the book
0: yeah that's why i said multiple narrators because ultimately um you could have an uh, an older ben narrating how he was feeling at that point to make him seem less of a creep mm. yeah mm. yeah absolutely uh, very little narration for stanley of course um, <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's not required
2: I think the other thing as well is that the the difference in the pacing the way that the book is arranged in terms of chronology and the way that the, the TV series is you don't really get the feeling in the in the sh- in the show of them remembering it as they're going along whereas in the book I think that does come across that they go into this with no real memory of what happened and as they learn the reader learns so you do get that feeling of it, it building to a crescendo
0: we haven't even mentioned deirdre uh, bill denver Audra. she's Audra. that's how important she is <laughs> bill denver in his um you know his writing career has uh, hooked up with a hollywood starlet played by the girl who played um juliet in the zeffirelli version
2: olivia hussey
0: olivia hussey and uh she is you know he, he talks on the phone to mike and then comes back and goes i had a brother and he was murdered when i was a, a kid i never mentioned him before because i'd forgotten basically and um she goes oh, okay and he goes well i'm going to dairy bye and she goes well, "What? you go bye and then she pursues him <laughs> and uh ends up getting caught by it round about the time that tom this evil vile wife beating maniac turns up and um she gets lured into its pit and uh he you know he terrifies her so much but she stares into the deadlights that her br- mind is gone by the end and there's a sequence uh, earlier on referenced uh, several times in the book and uh, a couple of times in the um uh, a miniseries where uh, Bill, after acquiring a giant bike named Silver, you know, hi oh, Silver, way the steed of the Lone Ranger, um, uh, outraces the devil. Uh, In that um, it is chasing them, and wisely, you don't see what it is. You just see from the perspective of whoever's riding on the back. I think it was was Georgie in the book, and then Stan? It's
2: it's Richie in the book, it's Stan in the TV series.
0: Right. Um, And then at the end, after they've beaten it, and uh, Deirdre is still. Audra. Audra is still, whatever, is, (laughs) is still catatonic, he does that. And uh, in the book, she, it mentions that he has a playful boner, which she squeezes, because Stephen King can't, was this talking about boners at inappropriate times? Um, but, uh, you know, that snaps her out of her catatonia, and uh, that's, that's the happy ending. Um, uh, while I was listening to a sequence about silver, I walked to the shop to buy some um, bread, and Guy on a fucking collapsible silver bicycle of a kind I haven't seen for decades cycles past me. I at least scream my tits off.
1: <laughs> the question though for you, Alex, did you have a boner? That's the question. I did, but only
0: because of the, the, the sudden relevance to what I was reading. And I nearly chased him to tell him that it was a playful boner and he should take note of it. <laughs> Um, anyway, (laughs) but but basically it was one of those, it it was silver and it was the kind with the sort of the the wheels that fold in. Obviously it's not the kind that he's got there, which is a sort of an ancient, um, one with a big old seat, but, uh, it just odd things, you know, things like not wanted to leave my daughter on her own while I listened to it, you know, just, uh, um, it, it is an unsettling book. To read and to listen to. It's not flawless. No, there are elements of it that are dated. It, it's very long winded. It could be trimmed down by half and be a really much tighter story. Mm. It's, it feels like a sprawling epic. It's the Gone with the Wind of um, Lovecraftian I, horrors. I
2: have heard many, many jokes about the fact that because it is so thick, mm. it had to be printed on incredibly thin, thin paper, paper just to be able to make the paperback edition liftable. Mm. Um, and as a result, it's kind of it's almost like toilet paper. It's so yeah. it's so fine.
0: So the you know the people the amount of people in 1986 who were found battered and it turned out that the murder weapon was a copy of it so, nice one steve
1: that's so why given start- stephen king this idea for his next book i think yeah that's why he started doing <laughs>
0: short stories after that because you know he, he had to save people the, the giving them murder weapons mm-hmm. but um but uh, the overall the book the success of it selling the li- the life of a kid in the 1950s was very vividly there there were so many references and obviously elements of king's own past woven into it it felt very much like stand by me which is another one of his absolute best um and one of the absolute one of the absolute if not the best no no shawshank um but one of the top uh stephen king adaptations for the screen um it had that but what really struck me when i was finishing up and then what's almost entirely absent from the miniseries is the melancholy ending that once they've beaten it and they start to forget again. Eddie is horribly killed in front of them, and they leave his body down in the sewer. That's something they, they either correct or address in the uh, miniseries by bringing him back up again. Uh, it just it felt wrong leaving him down there, almost as though you know if they forget him, everyone else is going to forget him, and then his heroism will go unsung. But that's ultimately the the case, and. Um, Mike is is laid up in hospital at this point. Stan's killed himself. So it really ends on um, Bill and Ben. And by the way, Steve, have you ever heard of the flowerpot men? <laughs> and Beverly and uh, Richie crawling out of the sewer and kind of going, well, that's that. And you know, it flashes back to the um, when they were kids and made a blood pact to not forget this and to you know be able to come back if and and thus that's kind of like a, a, the magic was sealed at that point and it was I believe Stan who kind of initiated that so it's kind of like he then his shedding of blood is, is what precipitates the um, their return and the actual way they beat it is is almost irrelevant they, It's it's all to do with silver they get the idea in their heads that silver bullets kill werewolves so silver kills evil so they in the book, they melt down silver dollars into slugs, which Beverly fires out of her catapult. In the TV movie, it's like, "Hey, my mom's silver earrings," so we can kind of bypass that whole melting down thing. But really, it's 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 irrelevant. It's their deciding to kill it, and their unflagging resolve that ultimately dooms it. And Beverly ends up with Ben. The boy who's loved her from afar for so long. Then after that, it's not just that they're forgetting. What really hit me was that Mike has been writing it down, and when he calls them, they forget who he is, and he forgets them, and they have to sort of qualify things, and they're all forgetting. But his notes start to fade as well. I think the the rational part of me was like, just write it down, tattoo it on your body, memento this shit, make sure you don't forget but the idea that the writing itself would be unreliable scared me. But at the same time, it had kind of a poignancy to it. Like this was, it's meant to be something that's forgotten. It's too horrible to live with your whole life. And that, that was a really powerful ending for me. And I ended up, you know, I was, I was engaged with the book the whole way through. But then I ended up, you know, finishing off feeling really like Lord of the Rings melancholy at the end kind of the the, you know the the end of all things and i was really impressed and i haven't been and i immediately started thinking what other good stephen king books can i read listen to
2: and i couldn't think of any (laughs) (laughs) not not that that, well no you i said i couldn't think of any that had that particular tone um and i i would still stand by that it is unique
0: well it's not it's unique to Stephen King, but it's been emulated time and again since then we've mm. got stranger oh, yeah. things super eight even the the goonies is afterwards so I'll just double check I never
2: that. really got that from the goonies monster squad <laughs> huh <Yeah.
0: laughs>
2: um but then i think i I lost out a lot by not watching the goonies when I was a kid
0: eighty five so it's
1: actually a year beforehand mm. but uh I think stranger things is i think is the comparison that i think is yeah. the easiest to make, and I think a lot of the reason. I engage so much with Stranger Things because it's a, a lot of it in there, um, as well as a lot of a lot of other things. But um, but yeah, I think Stranger Things is really the modern day version of it in many ways. Yeah, and certainly wouldn't hurt um, they
0: making. It certainly wouldn't hurt the people making it now to look closely at Stranger Things and work out why that's good and how few jump scares are really in there. Mm.
2: Well, they, they must have done, because one of the kids from Stranger Things is in it.
0: Yeah. He's just like, you guys should
1: really watch that show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, get a better child actors, I think, is a, a good place to start. Yes. And yeah. yeah.
2: nodding fervently. Monster House, <laughs> is
0: another, uh, uh, Monster House is another great uh, Stephen King, or Itty-style child dynamic. Mm. Um, and uh, Like I said, the, the, the Super 8, it's the idea of kids... Genuinely out of their depth in a situation where uh, people are dying that's uh, unsettling and powerful, especially if their friendship is able to keep them together during that scenario. I, in fact, started crafting a book along those lines many, many years ago that may still sometimes see the light in the new century somehow.
1: I've, I've just realized the most obvious Stephen King book comparison to it that you may not like is um, Dreamcatcher oh is probably- my no. god yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: it, it, in structure it is very very similar to it it's probably the, clo- the Have you? I know you've seen the film I've seen yes. the fucking oh,
0: film um, I've read the book um, um, Sharon's think, with the think, book with the butt slugs yeah it
2: it I think, honestly, the similarities to the structure of it is one of the things that really pissed me off about.
0: Well, Dream it's him Capture. trying to recapture He's, his yeah, greats,
1: exactly,
2: yeah. and, and sort of like I'm let's put a bit of shining
1: so. in here, clickety clack. Hey. I, I don't. Dreamcatcher. It's not a, not a great book, but I, I did enjoy the bits with the kids. I think that's where again that the strength of that book is. But yeah, it's not really anywhere near the, the standard of it. Mm. <laughs> um.
0: Also, the kids uh, that weren't really dealing with something so huge and malevolent. It, they, in fact, it's it really just sort of a, uh, uh, a prologue to them dealing with huge shit as, uh, well, huge man-eating shit as, as adults, and two of them get killed immediately once that happens, so it dispenses with that idea anyway. Yeah,
2: group dynamic, yeah. You
0: know, you can't kill two of your cast at the beginning, and there's only four of them.
2: Don't they end up up against somebody called Mr. Grey?
0: yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: I think so. That's yeah. that's Pennywise's surname.
0: Your theory yeah. was um, right. that uh, a lot yeah. of uh, things that Stephen King writes, obviously, because he's got that combined universe. He's yeah. got Castle Rock, this integer town where where all of these things uh, crisscross. He's got the uh, Dark Tower, which is referenced in it, mm. and uh, the the idea of all of these like you know this vast universe and and you don't have to read all of his books in a specific order um and
1: I'd, I'd recommend reading dark tower in an order though I
0: don't Oh think yeah I've read mean. the first one um but the uh but y- your theory was that um all of the horrible occurrences are actually tentacles of it that you know it's spread around the planet and and has like well, so in not the not shining even the planet just Maine
2: yeah <laughs> everything bad seems to happen in Maine but in yeah. the
0: shining that hotel is sort of sitting on a similar kind of mm. ma- cosmic malevolence.
2: Yeah, basically, I just think there is there is a possible interpretation that when it arrived all those eons ago, it created a set of fault lines of horribleness, and that, as you say, the the other occurrences in Castle Rock and all the other um, places that. Um, that King refers to could be seen as extensions of that idea because this idea of there being this dark pulsing thing at the heart of everything that
0: corrupts,
2: corrupts and creates bad situations. um,
0: Puppeteers.
2: Yeah. It just, it, I mean, I, I realise there are massive flaws in the argument, and if I actually sat down with all the books and picked them apart, there would be Especially much Especially since,
0: to... apparently, it ended in 86, which means that uh, anything that happened afterwards would...
2: Technically doesn't count.
0: ...would be a vestigial <laughs> remnant that's not attached to the mothership.
1: Mm, yeah, well, I, can so. I just read you of something I've written in my notes? I wrote about Derry. There's a darkness underlying everything, which is what you just said. Mm. And my next line is Trump. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 <I don't know. laughs> they missed an egg. <laughs> <laughs> Was he born in Derry? Do you think?
0: Oh yeah. yeah, he's very successful, huge success. I have great success with Cthulhu. Mm. They love me. <laughs> all of the children have something specific that scares them, and it all seems to tie in with their the way their parents raised them. You know, Be- Beverly's terrified of, of blood. But she's also terrified of being attacked sexually. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a fear she can't quite put a finger on. But when her father starts to you know get really close and sleazy, and I worry about you sometimes, Bevy. It becomes like a real sort of you know she's wondering. Like her mother asks her, "Has has he ever touched you?" And it no, he hasn't. So it starts to become a fear in her mind, and it becomes more real. Whose was the teenage werewolf? Was it just Richie? That's
2: Richie. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, the mummy is Stan, or the mummy is Eddie. Um, but it's in Stan the, in the in the, f- the mini series. The mummy
2: is uh, Ben. Ben. Right. Um, they do mix them up a lot in yeah. the in the TV series. In Bill, I think it, it was dead dead more influenced. Kids? Like with,
0: Bill's terrified what of seeing Georgie. You know? Yeah, his is more of an existential fear—the idea that children are being killed—and mm. what's Eddie's? E- Eddie's is the leper. The leper. Mm. Like, apparently this, this, this old hobo keeps turning up and going, Hey kid, I'll suck your dick! And he's a leper. And that's what Eddie's most afraid of.
2: It, it's a re- I, th- I thought of that as a representation of Eddie's fear of illness mm. that his mother has ingrained in him.
0: And Mike Hanlon seems to be afraid of this giant, unnaturally large bird. But uh, yeah, as, as they become together as, as the seven, their individual fears become the group's fears, and uh, it becomes stronger, but at the same time it becomes more vulnerable. Mm. And what really strikes me in the sort of the middle end of the book is it's screaming at them to, to, to go to, to leave, otherwise it's going to kill them. And it's, well, why haven't you? Mm. There is something about them that protects them. Because otherwise, he would simply pick them all off one by one. It would be easy for him. He is a being of unspeakable power, and he has to be researched by top men. Um, and.
1: <laughs> a little young for you, isn't she, Richie? Beep, beep, Richie! I
0: didn't hear that. I didn't!
1: I beg your pardon. Come on up, Richie! I got a balloon for you. <laughs> Don't you want a balloon? <laughs> What's the matter? One balloon, not enough.
0: Try freeze! Is everything all right? Yes. Last
1: chance, Tosha. Get out before it gets dark tonight. You're too old to stop me. You're all too old. No, Mike Allen, if you see. Excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. Mike Hanlon said I had to go.
0: That I had to get cleaned up. Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out! Yes! Get out! Get out! Excuse
1: me now!
0: One thing that never gets properly addressed is how come they don't have any children. They all they remark on the fact that none of them have any children, but no one actually asks why. No one asks why they're relatively successful. A relatively successful 40-something without children has the means to get back to Derry and has less of an anchor point keeping them in this world than they would if they also had the responsibilities of a parent. With a child... Each of them has a very real reason not to face it. A genuine challenge there. Something else they're invested in. Keeping them childless keeps them in the position of children. Time does not cycle forwards. They do not jump up a new layer. They do not assume new roles. They're effectively tall children who earn money. Whatever's manipulating them appears to be keeping them almost like Tibetan monks or, or warrior monks in the, or indeed Jedi. But of course, one of the driving factors that pushed Bill Denborough into actually trying to strike out and fight it was that his brother was lost. It was that link, that love, that personal connection that conceptualized for these guys. This must not happen to the rest of the world. So I think it would have been far more interesting if several of them had had kids, because that presents all kinds of conflict. I also think that when the adults went down into the sewers in the 80s to try and find and finally kill it for the last time, they should have come across a bunch of 80s kids who were trying to do the same thing, the next generation. Now bear in mind I'm in no way disparaging adults who don't yet have children or who choose not to have children. But when you're up against a child-eating demon, it really does come down to what you can bring to the table, and being parents would lend both debilitating weakness and great strength to their fight. It's more complex, it's more interesting. And that's why we talked about them as children a lot more. And I realise we've gotten to the end of this podcast without discussing those jackasses dressed as clowns running around terrorising people, principally because... They're either very horrible people or complete fuckwits. They need to be tased in the balls. Uh, but, th- but there is something among them which means that he has to try... It has to um, attempt to scare them into scattering and attempt to scare them back from their, their task, which means they've pretty much already beaten it.
2: Just by being together.
0: That if it is scared of them and their unity then there's nothing they can't overcome, which is, of course, one of the things that I am most uh, energized by, the idea of unity and overcoming great adversity with that. So, yeah, this, this rang a lot of my bells. It took a while sometimes, and it also kicked me in the balls too many times and described penises and pubic hairs.
2: And people being kicked in the balls yeah, or hit in the balls.
1: Yeah, that happens quite a lot in this book, doesn't
0: it? It really does, yes. But I am very glad I didn't just watch the miniseries because uh, it, it was time for me to finally mine this book. It's going to be tricky for me to do this sort of thing again. Um, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to really want it in the case of, uh, 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 a lot of books because, um, read, I uh, listening to stuff is a lot easier for me because I can incorporate it into other things that I'm doing, but sitting down and reading my mind wanders, I reel away from books. We're going to review in the next few weeks uh, another book adaptation which failed to meet standards and expectations, his Dark Materials. Uh, in that, you'll, you'll get a lot of similar kind of, you know, the missing of the depths and missing of the textures and the reasoning, and a very shallow grasp on the, 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 the major themes. And and just hitting the plot points Yeah, Yeah, I think that's fair But but I'm very glad I delved this hard into it And I can see why it's been part of your building blocks, Mm. Sharon
2: A very important part So thank you very Um, much I appreciate your efforts on it
0: That's okay and uh, thank you, Nick, for sponsoring us on this show. And if you folks want to sponsor us for something else, get in touch, talk to us. Not the stand. Us. Not the stand. Get in touch, talk to us. <laughs> and uh, we will try our best to see what we can uh, rustle up. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we won't promise anything you know, that we will do everything without uh, consideration. But, um, you know, we've talked it through with everyone who's sponsored us so far, and they've been very happy with the results. So uh, there's a whole bunch of them coming in early January. We recorded a whole bunch recently, which there isn't time to cram in before Christmas, but they will be coming out. Uh, Meantime, thank you, Alan, for coming on this show and talking to us about
2: it. Thank you very much for joining us,
1: Alan. (laughs) It's been an absolute pleasure. I've listened to you for a long time, and I think you do amazing work, so it's so nice to be on, and um, I'm I just want everybody to know that Alex does amazing work so he really needs supporting.
0: Thank you very and much.
1: And Sharon as well. Of course, Obviously, sorry, Thank I just you. said Alex. <laughs> Alex and Sharon. <laughs> sorry, that was very rude of me. It Alex, wasn't at I'm all. No, no, it's no, fine.
2: That's, that's fine.
0: <laughs> Thank that's you. Fine. Thank
1: you, Alan. Okay, folks,
0: uh, so we will be back for the uh, fourth part of our Spooktacular <laughs> um, talking about a movie series which isn't actually a million miles away from this in terms of uh, something lurking out in the dark bowers of man's domain, coming back periodically to prey on the unwary, and specifically children. The Blair Witch Project. And in fact, we're also doing Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which is god-awful, and Blair Witch, the 2016 reboot rebootquel, which uh, I... Well, you'll find out next week. Okay. So that is all from us this time. I have been Alex Shaw.
2: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out.